right, everybody, welcome to the Based Brotherhood, episode number three. My name is Alex, a.k.a. Lead Pacer. I'm joined here today by Lasad Corday, our production guru, and our honored guest, Kevin Couchman. Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Beautiful in Miami. What brought, what brought you to Miami? This. I'm here to come on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> uh, no, I, I live in Minnesota, and it is uh, January, uh, and it's time to get out of Minnesota for a little bit. Yeah, just enjoy it might be the time sun. to get out of Minnesota permanently, but right. that's, that's a whole other thing. We'll that's, get into that. Yeah, I think we will get into that. Yeah, so you're an, an awesome guy. I met you a few days ago through through Lasad. Yeah. And uh, we just had a great, great time I'm lear- you know, learning about you and all the projects that you're involved with. And you're really a renaissance man. I mean, you're, you've got your hand in a little bit of everything. But I want to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, your projects. Uh. Like, you know in order of importance, in order mm. of, you know, what's most favorite, what are you, what are you up to? Oh, uh, well, I have a podcast with a friend of mine called Art of Darkness. You can find it at artofdarkpod.com. And that is a podcast about the dark side of creativity. So we do biographies of famous people, famous creative people who you think you might know. They're all dead. We wait a year <laughs> and a, yeah, right. We, we wait a year and a day to do somebody. We're getting ready to do M- MF Doom. Uh, he's going to be, I think, the first example of somebody that we've been excited to do, but out of respect. And we don't want to be like the ambulance chasing podcast. We wait. But we've, we've done Stanley Kubrick, uh, Virginia Woolf. Mm. We've done, uh, most recently, we did Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. So we we do a wide range of things. It's really fun. It's a fun show. It's an audio-only podcast, artofdarkpod.com. I really, I really enjoy doing that. That's a big thing that we've been working on lately. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So how many episodes have you done so far? We've done about 20 and we kind wow. of have our main hardcore episodes where Brad will take a subject and walk me through the life of the subject. And then we, we, we'd go back and forth. So, uh, sometimes he pitches, sometimes I catch it and then we flip roles. So I will, for example, Brad did Kafka. I did Kubrick. It's nice because we, you get to take a break while the other guy does all the heavy lifting and right. you play the foil to them and learn as you go. And we focus on the dark side. So it's like, how messed up were these people? Kubrick was a D student. He nearly nearly didn't make it through high school, (laughs) but somehow he figured it out and made it work. And, uh, and then we also do kind of side episodes. We call them, uh, we do after dark for, for the Patreon subscribers. So every, every episode has a little extra after, but we also do these episodes. We call the dark room where we grab somebody who's listened to the episode, who has some standing and they maybe join us and help further, further the conversation. So we're having some guests this weekend to talk more about, uh, Kafka. And then occasionally, we have people on to join us to do the episode. So we have like a friend, Aaron Gwynn, who's a famous uh, writer and a professor. He's not going to like that. I called him a famous writer, but (laughs) (laughs) he's a novelist and a very fine novelist. And he came on to do the Faulkner episode with us. And we had a fellow named Aldous Asterian, who is Forest of Symbols on Twitter, come on and do James Joyce. It's, It's a lot of fun to do. It maybe sounds a little nerdy, but... For us as artists, like Brad's a writer, I'm a playwright and a screenwriter. For us, it's something that we would do regardless of whether anybody else enjoyed it. Right. <laughs> like it's a fun right. thing we do. And of course we want to make it for other people and people do respond, but it's it's edifying and it's very interesting to interrogate, especially now, right? what it means to be an artist and 
to remember the whole humanity of, of these various figures. So there's a lot more going on than just what you see. Right. Yeah. And so how, how long will the episodes normally, like two hours, three hours? Two to three hours, yeah. I think we thought initially it was going to be, oh, there'll be 90 minutes and we'll keep it tight. And then we realized, how do you talk about the whole of Oscar Wilde's life, for example, in 90 minutes? It almost can't be done right. and do it honor. I mean, if anything, part of me has thought, Oh, should we be doing multiple episodes, etc.? We've we've landed on between two and three hours. Seems to be enough. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's awesome. So, uh, you know, one of the things you were hitting on is just how these are conversations you'd be having anyway. Yeah, people you've always been interested in, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing the show because we have these. Con- we meet interesting people. We'll have these dynamic conversations, and they're just totally lost. It's spontaneous. All these great things are said, and then it's just gone. And so, what we want to do is capture really interesting people, bring them here into the studio, have them call in, and let's save it for a posterity stick. Maybe some people are really interested in it. Maybe nobody's interested in it. But damn it, we're going to get it on. We're going to get it down. We're going to record it. I dig it. it. We are in the era of of the renaissance of radio. It is back, and people people love these podcasts. I love doing a podcast, and I'm a consumer of podcasts, too. It's great. Long-form content is amazing. I think everybody got so tired of the feeling of the restrictiveness of media and the fakeness mm-hmm. of everything, the inauthenticity of everything. Everybody, every bit of media you're consuming, it feels like it's gone through this filter of 10 layers of chess and producers and cut up and changed and too many cuts and too much irony and everything's ah, layered through all these fractals of expectation and game theory and who's this for and who's going to like it. And it's like, well, how about just throwing two people in a room and, and listening to the to a real yes. conversation? That is as unfiltered as people can be. Right. And yeah. by the way, it doesn't work on social media either. Mm. Whenever everything is scripted and regimented. I mean, like the, the whimsical, like spontaneous, like, hey, we're just, I mean, we had a video that went viral a couple years ago on a product I was working on, throwing it up on TikTok, just kind of spur of the moment. It ends up getting 6 million views, half a million likes. We get incredible engagement, people reaching out. And I never experiencing, mm. experienced anything like that on social media, but it was a good lesson in that. You just want to kind of roll with it and put stuff out there and you don't want to script it too much. Like maybe kind of have a rough idea of what you want to do, but let it flow. Yeah. I think people want that. And I think right now, because there's so many choices, I do think authenticity cuts through and I, I'm a big fan. I don't like overproducing anything. Yeah. We leave our ums and our ahs and our foibles <laughs> and our mistakes in. And if we make a huge mistake on the show, we try to correct it and people will jump in. It's fun when... I mess up a city, right? I think I, ooh, this is really Give bad. Give us an example. Well, I think I, I said something about H.P. Lovecraft. I associated him with Baltimore, but I was confusing him with Poe. Lovecraft is, I think, Rhode Island, somebody said. Okay. So, but, you know, you get Lovecraft. I don't know everything. So it's right. not like everybody, anybody, you know, really had a hard time with it, but we try to get it right. We're not journalists. I have a degree in history, but I'm not an historian. So it's just, it's just a couple of, we call ourselves very online writers. Brad's active on Twitter. I'm active on Twitter. If anybody has a, like a five week course I can take to get off Twitter, please send it to me. <laughs> I will, you know, help me get help free me uh, <laughs> from Twitter. Right. But it's like, yeah. we're very online guys and we're, yeah. we're talking and we're bringing on more guests and we try to do a, a really diverse array of, uh, of artists. Uh, we did Zora Neale Hurston. That was very interesting. Brad did that. Just so much to do. And 
as a show format, it's so interesting, right? We had uh, we did Frank Herbert around the Dune yes. release. Yes. So there are these funny ways that we can tie it into things that are happening happening in the popular culture, uh, but somehow the show stands on its own, and it's a fun. It's a really fun project. I like doing it. No, it's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about your background. Oh, like where were you born? Oh, where did you grow up? Where, I was born uh, in Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay. And I was raised, by and large, in Mandan, North Dakota, across the river. And the joke in Bismarck is that you tell, you tell your, your sister not to drink the water when she's over in Mandan because she'll come home pregnant. Mandan's <laughs> uh, oh, a little bit, it's the, sort of the rough side of the, of the, yeah. of the river. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, good people. Uh, do you ever see the movie um, Jesus, uh, Jesus Camp? No. <laughs> Jesus Camp was this documentary that really made a splash. I've heard of it. Because it has all these uh, crazy evangelical uh, adults essentially abusing these children in this psychotic cult uh, of sort of arch Protestant evangelicalism, where at one point they're, they, the children pray and like lay hands over a cardboard cutout of George W. Bush. It's really what? quite something. Yeah, they're they're gonna they're warriors for Christ. It's it's worth watching. the The reason I bring it up is because the woman who is the uh, the villain, <laughs> let's call her what it is, the, the, one of the core subjects. She's right. from Bismarck, and uh, so you can get a you can kind of get a glimpse of what that area is like out there. But I moved from there when I was seventeen. I moved to Minnesota to Minneapolis where I attended the U and so I went to the University of Minnesota and got my degree in history and philosophy but I'd always wanted wanted to be a writer mm -hmm. so coming out of that I really began to explore uh theater playwriting so yeah. I I wrote a few short plays and then went into the theater and acted in a Neil Simon play some goofy comedy uh and had a chance at after that to go over to London where I studied playwriting at the Royal Court Theater which is where um Look Back in Anger premiered, Blasted premiered, um, a Rocky Horror Picture Show mm -hmm. premiered there. It's a, it's a major new writing theater and one of the big ones in the world. So I was there for a year, acted in a play, kept doing my playwriting, had a great time, 2006, 2007, just amazing. Came back to Minneapolis and then I really started writing plays and I... I got connected with the Playwrights Center down, uh, down in Minneapolis, which is now at like the, in the heart. I mean, it's right in the heart of Minneapolis off the campus. Um, and then that career, I also have like a kind of a tech career going on on the side. Like I do mm -hmm. websites and things. So right. I don't want anybody to think that I have a trust fund. Not at well, that all. That was going to be my question. Yeah, how, yeah. how do you pay the bills? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I pay the bills through, to, through web development principally. Okay. Yeah. So I've done that for a long time. Very, very good at WordPress. I've worked in a wide array of capacities doing that. I do some technical writing now. I've been a remote work guy since 2003. One of the first jobs I had out of university allowed me to work remotely. And yeah. that, that has been life-changing. If there's any advice I can give to like anybody who's younger, it's boy, if you can maneuver your way into a position where, and this is the whole world is going through this change. Absolutely. Right now. Yeah. I'm very comfortable. <laughs> I'm yeah. very yeah. happy. Yeah. I, I just simply almost refuse to take a job where they expect me to be in an office. I think office offices are like torture chambers mm -hmm. for status obsessed, uh, nincompoops it's right <laughs> it's midwind it's midwind central man. oh it's just yeah. awful you could feel the eyes on your uh, looking over your shoulder and your time right. doesn't feel like your own i i understand for some industries mm -hmm. if if 
they're going to pay me $400,000 a year to code something really uh, hardcore <laughs> yeah. where it's got to be all locked down. But even those jobs are all, have all gone remote. Right. Um, so yeah, so just flash forward, you know, flashing forward, I wrote my plays. I, I got a fellowship at the Playwright Center. I got to write my way into a grad program. I got into a good program at Texas. So I went down to UT Austin, did awesome. grad school there. Great school, great state, hook them horns. Wait, when was this? What years? That was uh, 20, 2010 to 2013. Okay, that was so you. Were, that was still the good Austin, because I will rant and rave about Austin because I lived there for probably off and on for a dozen years. Okay, and so there's all these people that are moving in now from, you know, New York or San Francisco or L.A. or whoever it is, mm -hmm. small town Texas. Like this is the big time. This is awesome. This is so great. Like guys, you should have seen it. You know, 10, oh. 15, 20 years. Well, ago. and the people in who knew it in the 90s, say by the time yes. I got there, it was something else entirely. That's what they tell me too. I mean, I went yeah. back because I, I left Austin, moved to New York City, lived in New York City for seven years. Then the coof happened. The great COVID conflagration happened. Oh, we yeah. were already planning on leaving <laughs> right. uh, for a variety of reasons, but we got caught up in that and fled Manhattan like kind of like refugees. I mean, it was very, very spooky. Only to land in the Twin Cities right before the the race war almost kicked off, right? Right, right yeah. before the Floyd incident. So we right. had a hell of a year. And uh, I'm just, I'm sort of, I might need to, do you have any any Xanax? Or I mean, it was <laughs> yeah, I got just, some over here. Real yeah, quick. yeah, okay, Hang good. On. Yeah, okay. Let me, time out, time yeah, out. Yeah, 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 time out. Yeah. No, um, but we went down to Austin as a bit of a break at, some point there because the lockdowns were so crazy. It was so crazy that you just year. Got Airbnb yeah, we just got an Airbnb in West Austin, and, yeah. I, and I took my took my gal down there to, for her to see it. And even I was like, "Wow, this is so different." Seven years later, from my time there, it's almost unrecognizable. Did you, did you like it? I do. I love Austin. I think uh, Austin's a great town. I mean, if we're comparing it. To most other places, I think Austin is, is still a very solid choice. It's the bee's knees. Yeah. You've got a great climate. If you, it gets a little hot. Right. You have you have UT is there. You have the Longhorns. You have Sixth Street. You have now the booming tech, all of it. But right. all of that stuff comes with problems. Right. And it used to be, you talk to the old timers about what it was like, like in the 80s and the 90s. This was like a sleepy college town. It was right. like a college town. Now it's Silicon Valley too. And... Uh, of course, they don't California, my Texas. It comes with all kinds of problems because those people who flee the places that they've ruined right. <laughs> with their their voting and their lifestyles come to these other places for a reason. Yeah, but they can't see it. No, of course. That's the whole thing. Like you see them, see these people complain on Twitter and saying, I'm thinking about leaving New York. I'm going to leave San Francisco. And they don't truly understand what's happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've heard some people in California, Shameth Paliapatia, you know, the billionaire who just got in trouble for saying that nobody cares about the Uyghurs. Right. It's below my line. It's, it's just below my line. Yeah. San Marcos, was, Texas clear about it. is below my mind. Right. My and then, line. And yeah. then he kind of, you know, <laughs> issues an apology that's not really an apology at all. It's like, right. there's no empathy here. He, does, he really doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so I watched the All In podcast. You know, we've got, you know, four guys are all probably billionaires or very close to it. And they'll talk about any number of issues. And it's really interesting because you get these insights into these guys that are incredible capital allocators, um, investors, business people. And they're just, it, it's interesting. Now, they are more to the left outside of one guy, David Sachs. But, um, you know, I remember during one of the podcasts, Chamath was talking about how California 
has fallen into disrepair mm. because it's a one-party state government. Yeah, they have, no, it, they have no reason it, to perform. And it's a machine state government. Yeah. And so there's really not even room for somebody that's kind of an outsider to infiltrate the Democratic Party. Yeah. It's just on lock. And, and that was the main reason. And I was thinking, wait a second, Chamath, like that's that, that there's some truth in that. But there is an alternative. There is another party, you know, and I don't know where any states where you have one party government by Republicans that's comparable to the problems of California. <laughs> right. Well, doesn't Cal make any sense. California is a big place, too. Yeah. And I'm sure the apologists would say, what, it's like the seventh largest economy in the world. I and maybe think, I California. think I'm, I, I've heard it's the fifth. Yeah. Fifth, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Right. You have the similar problem in Minnesota where it feels like a one party state. They have a lock on all the cities. So they don't it doesn't feel like they really have to compete or make concessions. And so you end up in a situation like we're in now where people are looking around looking for somebody to blame, right. but there's nobody to blame because there's no, there isn't even any meaningful opposition. Right. So it's this very strange, it's like, it, it, it's like a kind of a Stockholm syndrome situation. Right. It's like a hostage taking. Yeah. And let's yeah. talk a little bit about that because I've got some friends who actually, of all places now live in Austin. Ah, uh, it seems like they all congregated there. Well, see the Austin, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the Austin thing is funny because yeah. they're the Austinites will have the the liberal Austinites will have this kind of siege mentality where they will they'll say these these annoying things like, well, it's not Texas, it's Austin. It's like this is the capital of the state of Texas. Right. It really doesn't get any more tech, Texas than this. Right. And yes, you're a blue island in a sea of red, and there's this us and them mentality. I, I found it very, very off-putting and alienating when I was down there. But these these people who who don't know what Texas is like and then come down to Austin, I think have a lot of catching up to do. And I do you would hope that they would come with some degree of humility and some degree of um kind of a willingness to be open to learn what the Texas thing is about. But of course this bug man existence where they slot into some tech job. It's Grubhub is there. Yeah. Uh, Uber is there. No, I want to, yeah. I want to talk about this at length because I, I've been one of these, you know, uh, you know, Twitter message groups. It's got like 50, 60 people and it's kind of schizo all over the place, but it's very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it like demands your attention. Like you can't kind of passively go about it. Right. And um, I completely lost my train of thought. Where were we going? We were talking about Austin. We were, ta and, we're talking and your about your friends, Austin. your group of friends who yeah, moved there. Yeah. Okay. Here, here's where here's where I was on that. Okay. So, you know, we're we, I live in Florida. I've, I've lived in Texas for you know Dallas for the last four years. I live in Austin before that for several years, and um, you know I look at what's happening in Florida, and it's phenomenal with with, with Big Ron. I call him Big Ron DeSantis. What what he's doing here in this state, mm -hmm. and you know the more I learn about him, the more I like. And I don't want him to run against Trump in 2020, 2024. I want him to stay right here and term out through 2026 and continue to make Florida as wonderful as it is. Because there's actually more registered Republicans. Not, and that's, not that I love everything about Republicans, but there's more registered Republicans than there ever has been. And actually more than Democrats, which hasn't happened in a long, long time in Florida. So Florida's got all these great things happening. And, you know, there's this kind of debate or this, you know, jockeying for position right now between Texas and Florida. Mm. As kind yeah, of the yeah. two leading big, you know, red states. And, you know, the people that live in Texas will be like, look at all the, you know, look at all the companies that are moving here. Like sure. Oracle just moved their headquarters to Austin. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Meta just, you know, leased the largest space ever in downtown Austin going to be paying a boatload. Oof. So Meta, which I don't like using the name Meta, it's Facebook, but Ugh. Meta. 
Zucker face. They're moving in. Zucker book. Exactly. So, yeah. And they're going to be moving in in mass, bringing more people out there. Uh, you've got Apple building huge facility out there. You've got Tesla building their mega giga factory or whatever it is out in East Austin. Um, you know, you've got all these tech companies that, and you've got, um, you know, who moved recently to Houston, Hewlett Packard moved their operator, their enterprise business out to. So, I mean, you've got, you've got so many California companies that are moving to Texas and Texans are cheering and I'm like, yes, we have this great economy <laughs> and great jobs. It's like, yeah, guys, yeah. wait a second. Right. Do you understand what you're doing? What comes with this? Yeah. So yeah. I, this is something that I've, a little birdie, you know, told me that DeSantis was considering actually imposing a tax on large corporations that wanted to move to Florida. Instead of giving them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks to go to, to come move to the state of sure. Texas. Right. He actually wants to curtail that from happening to Florida, hmm. which is very counter to what you would think, you know, modern day conservatism is about. And it shows that this guy really gets it. And so, hmm. you know, he, he'll be focused on small business formation, medium sized businesses and growing companies in Florida. And you can't just bring this megacorp here. Florida so has it. the tourism that Texas doesn't have. That's one thing. Yeah. But can it really be that that big. I mean, those are big companies. That is yeah. going to change the landscape of Central Texas. Well, what do you think is going to happen over the long term with that that trend? Boy, I, I think it's impossible to say. I'm not an expert. I did want to mention, uh, and this kind of answers the question, that when I was down there in that Airbnb in West Austin, over by Deep Eddy Pool, if you know Austin, mm -hmm. great area, uh, there was a book on the shelf, and I picked it up, and it was Larry McMurtry. And I think the, it's a book of essays. You know, Larry McMurtry, uh, Lonesome Dove, mm -hmm, great mm -hmm. Texas novelist, great writer, uh, won the Pulitzer for, for Lonesome Dove. Uh, he wrote a book of essays about Texas, and I think it's called In a Narrow Grave. Mm -hmm. It's that great song, that great classic country song, <laughs> Oh, Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie. Do you know that? No, I don't. I'm not going to sing on this. <laughs> it's great, though. Listen, get, listen to the Coulter Wall co uh, cover of Oh, Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie. Uh, somebody from North Dakota. Um, but uh, Coulter Wall's from Saskatchewan, I think. But in any case, uh, this book of essays, McMurtry in the 60s, was writing about how Texas is just going to become more and more like California. And back in the 60s? He was already, they so were already. So how did he anticipate right. that? Well, he, he just, he was, he was talking about the things that had already begun to happen. The highway system, the, the shifting culture, the landscape changing, the cities becoming more central to life. All the things you would sort of expect. Right. As California, well, I mean, I think a good pop culture example, example would be the way that uh, in Mad Men, Draper ends up out in California yes. and he sees the future and he yes. sees the Californication of the future yeah. in that last moment he sees it and it is television is the future and, and Hollywood and LA and all that. So I think these people, these savvy culture people were seeing it and they're still talking about all these years later. But of course it's bizarre. If you travel between LA and Austin, you're, you go like, Whoa. <laughs> like it's there. It's right. more alike than not alike. Kind of. Right. You can see the similarities. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I always kind of thought that Austin was a little bit more like the Bay Area. Mm. And, you know, having lived in Dallas, I thought Dallas might have been a little bit more like L.A. Mm. But there is like crossover there. I mean, there's no real apples to apples comparison. Yeah. You know, but I, I remember Austin having a really 
supposedly thriving film scene. You know, you know, when all yeah. these states oh, sure. were giving out tax incentives to bring production companies there. And Austin did have a lot of good things that were going on. This is probably back in 2000, you know, mid to late 2000s. There was a lot going on there. Link letter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, if you've seen Bernie, you've seen the movie Bernie. No, with I Jack Black. Oh, you yeah. got to watch Bernie. People yeah. who are into Texas and Texas stuff, watch I, yeah, Bernie. I've got a blind spot yeah, when it yeah. comes to some of these movies. That's all right. Yeah, but go yeah. ahead. No, yeah. Bernie, it's Jack Black, and it's yeah. based on a true story uh, that was in Texas Monthly, I believe. It's a fellow named Skip Hollinsworth. I got to meet this guy when I was down there in grad school. And he wrote a story about this fellow named Bernie Teague, who was in East Texas in Carthage, I think it's called. And he was a funeral, funeral director who... And uh, he was gay and he got caught up with some old woman who was despised in the town. And he ultimately kind of like accidentally killed her. No. <laughs> it's so interesting. Is L this LBJ factor in here somewhere? There's no LBJ <laughs> in it, but we can talk about Kennedy if you want. You're a Dallas guy, right? But we Bernie, can't talk it's, about it's that, so good. Yeah. It's such a good movie. And it's Rick Linkletter. And the part of the genius of this film is that he cast people from the community and interviewed them mm -hmm. in the movie. So you'll go from Matthew McConaughey playing the sheriff, yeah, which is goofy and fun. This yeah. is this was during the McConaissance when he came back, right? Came right. back hard. I just I'm in the middle of True Detective season one right now. So is good. It, how's it going, by the way? It's so good. I've seen it like four or five times. I'm yeah. just so happy. I love watching it. But regardless, so you, you go from Matthew McConaughey in Bernie, and then these old women, these old porch squatting women who. He literally just pulled from the community. So it has this funny, it's a very Texas movie. Uh, you should check it out. It's really cool. Yeah. And there's a, he made Boyhood down in Austin, which is mm -hmm. a great movie. Um, I, when I did my thesis play, my, my play down at UT for my MFA, I got to work with one of the actors, the guy who played the, uh, like the abusive stepfather in that, Marco Perello, great actor. So there is, there's a real scene down there. You can, you can do a lot down there. There are a lot of lot worse places. Who's the to other be. guy? Is it, did Robert Rodriguez go to University of Texas? He might have. There's a there's a real serious. Is it Grindhouse Film? Is I, that what there's you? a real serious uh, film you know film department. The there is. television. Well, and I film. remember. I mean, so I remember the old Austin Airport. Oh yeah, which was actually a prime location, just a little bit north of downtown on the east of, of 35. You and land they, and they just hand you a well, breakfast was, taco. <laughs> <laughs> do they do that now? Yeah. But, yeah, but back right. then it was just a prime location. It was really kind of, in, it was very convenient, like right in the mm. heart of Austin. And they ended up moving, you know, Austin, you know, building Austin Bergstrom, you know, a little bit outside of town. And it, it's really honestly in the overall scheme of things, it's not an inconvenient airport. No. It was just so convenient before, but they sold it off. And now it's like, you know, it's movie stuff. It's movie studios. Oh, interesting. Entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be great if more would happen there. It's a great, it's a great town. I don't, I'm not one of these people who is going to uh, shit on Austin just because it's the hot thing right now. It's, I understand that the locals are like, stay out, stay out. of. I get right. it. I understand that vibe. But at the same time, things are moving the way they're moving. And a lot of people want to get out of these states that are starting to feel like well, failed people, states. We've got a friend who has this like beautiful modern house, mm. um, not quite in Terrytown. I'm trying to think of the area to describe it, but you know, so like West Austin basically. Yeah. yeah. And you know, she was trying to sell it for a while and, you know, trying to get max price. Like this is like a beautiful modern house. It's probably, yeah. you know, four plus million dollars. <sighs> I remember when the house was being built, I would drive by and I'd be like, I will live there one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then my wife meets this lady. They become great friends. 
And then like the next day, she's like, come to my house. And when we drive to the house, I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is the house that I saw. Anyway, beautiful, beautiful house. A lot of great architecture in Austin. But she was trying to unload this thing. Yeah. And couldn't get any buyers when COVID hit. Whoosh. All these people, all these people come, came people to the Bay Area in California. They don't want to have they're their... they're paying cash. Yeah. Like, I've like heard. We're paying 20% over, yeah. over asking price, paying cash. Yeah, yeah. And you see them in Austin, too. You right. go, oh, you're not from here. Right. And that's the thing about Austin is that, yes, it, it's a great place. It is desirable. But when I look at some of the housing prices now, oh, it's it's hard for me to reconcile. It's that. ludicrous. Like, I think we yeah. were looking at maybe a year or so ago, we were just kind of, you know, maybe we're going to leave Dallas. Like may, maybe Austin's an option. And sure. so we start, you know, getting on Trulia and looking yeah, at houses. Yeah. And then like, wait a second. These are terrible. I mean, this, these are this is awful. Like, you know, oh, it's oh my god, like, like mean, a crappy house is half a million six hundred thousand dollars. The market and you may not even be able to get it. I and mean, the market in the Twin Cities, yeah. for the opposite reasons that Austin is hot, the market in the Twin Cities is really cool. Like on the national level, it, okay. it's crazy how much house you can get in St. Paul. If you're willing to live in St. Paul, Minnesota, you can live in a mansion for what you would live in, like get a small bungalow in Austin for. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about your your hometown, basically. Um, yeah, the, and, and, the capital of the great state of Minnesota. The yeah. hometown of Louis Anderson. Rest in peace. Yeah. Louis, Louis Anderson passed away. He's a, he's a he St. Paul guy. He did, and we had guy. Meatloaf as well. I mean, yeah. it seems like we've had a, a, a number of people. I would do they anything for love, yeah. but I won't podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's, they, they do come in threes, right? Yeah, Bob Saget, Louis Anderson meatloaf yeah 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 no i was posting today his name is robert paulson ah, his name is robert his paulson. name is robert paulson. he was so good yeah, yeah. so good in i Fight forgot Club. that's him where he's crying on his big titties yeah his yeah. big man titties yeah yeah god god that movie was yeah that movie was a big deal when that came well, out. there were so many good movies mm. and i you know i go back in the memory bank and i think of all these movies that were kind of giving us a glimpse into the future uh in terms of we talk about fight club and the angst of young men mm. that weren't being spoken to. They were only being marketed products. Yeah. And like soulless consumerism. Sure. You buy that box in the sky and you buy, you know, right. out of your catalog, the nicest I furniture. I am Jack's and, Ikea catalog. Yeah. I am Jack's existential despair. And, and that was, and I remember, I love that movie because Brad Pitt killed it as Tyler Durden. Brad Pitt's amazing. He was so good. And Edward, Nor I mean, yeah. you know, Jared Leto gets his face beat in. And I mean, it's. <laughs> I forgot that Jared, Jared Leto, Leto is in every movie, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. He, he would that. I mean, he we're talking of, about the reconnaissance too. This He's, was like this was like ninety eight or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was in Dallas Buyers Club too. Uh, we just watched that the other day. Yeah. I don't know why I hadn't gotten to it earlier. Yeah. Phenomenal film. Great film, and one of the things that I do in addition to the podcasting and everything else, I'm a playwright. But I I might have mentioned that I'm also a screenwriter, and I have a screenwriting partner. Um, over in London and we've written three or four feature films and as part of that we we think a lot about like structure you ever tried to like write a screenplay I never have no there's a saying in screenwriting business where, plans okay you know PowerPoint presentations no it's a Excel little different. spreadsheet it's a little different from yeah. writing a yeah. screenplay. <laughs> yeah but there's this thing in screenwriting where people talk about the save the cat moment yeah where have you ever heard this it's like it's a bit of a hack thing where if you want to get the audience on the side of a character right right away and the movie's not uh, that sophisticated, you have the hero really quickly in the first 10 minutes of the movie 
save a cat from a tree. Oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. It's a yeah. bit of a cliche. It's kind of laying precedent. Like, hey, like. Oh, he's yeah. a good guy. Right. And you'll notice this when you start to look for it in movies. It'll, it'll be like the rough cop who's going through a divorce, but he has a puppy or something like this. Right. Um, but there's the save the cat moment in uh, Dallas Buyers Club is so good because this character that McConaughey plays is almost absolutely, totally irredeemable. He's such a monster at the beginning of that movie. He He's horrible. Right. And there's a moment where he, and if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've seen it, but the, there's a moment where he and his pal are going to hang out with some like prostitutes or some, some loose women or whatever. Right. And he has, he, he has his diagnosis mm -hmm. and he simply refuses to go along. He, he doesn't go through with it. And that moment, even though it's just an absolute bottom moment, if you look for it in the movie, it's the moment you go, this guy is not beyond. Right. He's got saving. some humanity. He has some sliver of humanity. Right. That, that really is a fine movie. It's, yeah. McConaughey's tremendous. No, it is. Yeah, yeah. It is. No, but I, I just think about how a lot of what we're experiencing now you know, in this kind of, I don't know if it's still like a COVID world or I, it's like a post-COVID reality. <laughs> is it post COVID? See, yeah. only a guy living in Miami could say yeah. it's for a lot of people. It's not. Yeah, baby. It definitely COVID never came to South Beach. You know people. what the problem is? You are being hoaxed. No, we, we brag too much about how great Miami is. And we post these pictures and like, yeah. it's a rather perfect day in Miami. And the problem is we're soft selling it to people. Yo, I never thought that I would live to see the day where Bongland, the UK, would be removing lockdowns and removing vaccine passports at what's the going same, on at the same time yeah. as Minnesota as Minneapolis and St. Paul started enforcing vaccine passports not in my lifetime would I ever have expected that to go that way I would have expected the UK to go really 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 hard for it to slowly if creep out right. into the blue states here and then for the tide, the wave to roll back as people stand up and fight. I never, that to me is a curveball. Like Minnesota going that way, well, the UK goes the other way. That to me is just completely. Well, Ireland as well. Yeah, Ireland, Ireland too. Today. Yeah. And so you're seeing, you know, the dam starting to break. Yeah, it has. In some of these places. And I don't, and, I, and, and people are really curious on Twitter, wondering what the hell's going on. Yeah. Like what, what's happening to where these governments are basically... Um, I guess admitting defeat from what they were so avid in pushing just a couple months ago, a month ago, which really pisses me off because, you know, I was, we had some, you know, travel plans to go to Europe, yeah, you know, back in December and have like a white Christmas in Switzerland and other places in Central Eastern Europe. And it didn't work out because Switzerland right now is lost their minds, just like Canada and Australia and so many other countries have. Yeah. And I, I, guess, you, I guess you could say us to an extent too. Right. Um, well, but, parts, yeah. Mm -hmm. But parts. But yeah, well, yeah. that's the intro. So this is something people don't. If you're not vaccinated, you cannot you cannot enter the United States, and there's no there's no real exceptions to that. So that's still like our crazy. Policy. I know. Crazy. I know. And of course, you know, the, you're so all the fun it's people. It's the flu. Yeah, yeah. All you're the nuts. all the fun people. We're keeping all the fun people out. Right. Right. But right. no, I, I, there's something that's going on. It's the biggest where, hoax of all time. Well, you had the balls to say it. It's a hoax. Yeah. I'll go on the record and say it's a hoax. Yeah. I really don't care. No, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I'll give you my view on it. I don't, I think it's a, it is a real thing. Yes. I mean, like it, it, there, it, there, it is a real virus. 
Um, it is something to be aware of and something to be concerned about. And certain people that have, you know, comorbidities and underlying health conditions and, the, you know, of a certain age, of a certain, you know, BMI, they need to be highly, they should be somewhat concerned about it. But for the vast majority of people, um, it's, it's really no different than the flu. And I mean, I think they could be, it's like Omicron is actually weaker than the common flu. So, I mean, I, 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 I look, I don't know anybody that's died of it. I know some people that have gotten relatively sick. Mm -hmm. Of course, you hear about people and it just depends on the circle because if you're an older person, if you're my parents that are like going into your seventies, your circle of people are going to be much more high risk. And so you're going to be more concerned about it. Whereas the world that I live in, the world that you live in, it's not really a factor. The, the response is absolutely ridiculous. And when I say it's a hoax, I'm not saying that the virus doesn't exist. I'm saying the response is absolutely absurd. Yeah. The metrics are completely uh, almost irrelevant. We don't even really have any good data. This idea that the flu magically disappeared, but now it's back. It's just, yeah. it's I think almost, I saw something where it's 90, beyond parody. Yeah, no, I, I think I saw something that flu cases were down 98%. No. It's just, Give me a break. it doesn't, it's just, it's ridiculous. The testing, testing creates cases, cases create hysteria and nobody's actually, it's like there are no adults kind of leading anything and it, it's highly political. If there was a real global pandemic that merited the kind of response that we saw, people would clamor for the response. Right. There would be bodies. Well, remember would remember know. the movie Contagion, 2011? Yeah, yeah. With Gwyneth Paltrow, who I think she actually died pretty early on in that movie. But I remember watching that. Actually, it was in the first couple months of, of COVID. And when you know, this hit, I guess, back in spring of, of 2020. And I remember watching that movie, and I'm like, this is a real pandemic. Like, if, if, if the fatality rate was something like 10, 20 plus percent, 10, 20%. percent one percent. If it was... You we would, would all be jamming whatever would, we can in our shoulder. We right. Yeah. Give us whatever it is. But, you know, we would. There would be a high, high level of concern. But whenever there's this much debate about, you know, like what's actually happening, yeah, I, mean, I can't even see it. Like, I mean, like I, nobody I know has. You know, people have gotten it. Yeah. But they wouldn't have known if they got tested. They just felt a little bit sick, and so now we're training people <sighs> in the mentality of getting tested. Yeah. I remember just. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, and I don't see it anywhere nearly as much. For whatever reason, during the holidays, this got to a fever pitch where I saw pop-up tents doing free COVID testing all over Miami. They're trying to ramp up the numbers. They're trying to get... They're trying to, yeah, and yeah. So there's actually a guy that we're going to have come on the show later um, who's in the medical industry. And I was, you know, I asked on Twitter, I said, why are there so many pop-up tents, you know, doing free COVID testing? And he said, well, because they're getting, you know, great payouts from the government. That's I it. mean, the test cost you know a, a, a nominal amount, you know, or a, a yeah. marginal amount, yeah. Yeah. and then you can, you know, get government to pay you out and make really good money. There was a yeah. fellow on the street with one of these uh, tents. Everybody in Miami, by and large, is going without masks. You see some older folks with them, and I respect that. I, if you're of a certain age and you feel that you need a mask, absolutely wear the mask, get as many boosters as you want. I respect your individual choice to do that. Uh, but this fellow, he's at one of these testing things and he, it reminded me of one of those medieval plague doctors. He yeah. had, he had the mask on, he had the visor mask over the mask. He had, it looked like he was Dexter going into the kill room. <laughs> he had the uh, plastic, like it's a human sized condom. 
and this is and meanwhile just everybody's walking around like normal he's acting like right. this is the the black plague like he's bulbous pustules okay. are going to break is, out is if this... he comes into contact with this is the vector of disease podcast with Alex and Kevin yeah. <laughs> so the question is you know and we see it or even here in Miami we'll see people wearing masks in the elevator yeah. Not so much out on the street, which a lot of other places, they're still wearing it out on the street yeah. when no one else is even around them. And like this, <laughs> That's this, my favorite. This you're flimsy, you're in your stupid, car. <laughs> fiberglass, blue mask. No, in the car, you see it by themselves. And I really want to yeah. just roll down the window and yeah. shout every kind. Like, I want to say, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what it's, are you it, doing? It is approached a kind of a kind of mental illness. It is the new armband. To say I'm going along with the program. Yeah. And it, I had this thought earlier today with a friend of mine. Uh, we were chatting about some Minnesota politics stuff. And it's almost like modernity didn't happen. When, the, when a plague like this comes along, whether it's real or hysterical or entirely a hoax or portion of it is a hoax, it feels like we, we return to a pre-modern kind of... Um, anxiety of like almost like totems like the mask is the mask isn't it we know the mask doesn't work but we wear it as a sign of faith right i'm in the uber and also there's this weird class element to it when do these masks come off the service workers who decides you know you call me a renaissance man i think i'm more of a medieval man wandering through this kind of <laughs> post-modern um, post dystopia right makes me think of um philip k dick do, do you ever um you know R. Crumb? Do you know who no. R. Crumb? Who, who is R. It? Crumb was a comic book artist. He would draw, he was a kind of a bit of a he was a degenerate. He 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 would draw these really buxom women. He's the guy who nice. like, keep yeah, yeah but they're <laughs> baby. Okay, all right. We're all getting right. after hours here uh, in the loft or whatever. That's but, what happens. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but um he he did the keep on trucking comics. Do you know this? There's a yeah. very good documentary. Um, it would, Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah, you know yeah, Jordan yeah, Peterson. Yeah. Jordan Peterson yeah, is a huge fan yeah. of this documentary about Robert Crumb. And yeah. it's just called Crumb. Uh, but Crumb wrote a comic about the vision that Philip K. Dick had at one point. You familiar with Philip K. Dick? He he wrote uh, the the story that Blade Runner was based on. Okay. Uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? He wrote something called Radio Free Albemuth, and that's where this comes from. He had in his life he had this weird thing happen, where like he described it as a Christ consciousness came over him, and told him that his son had some kind, I think, of a, of a hernia or something mm -hmm. like an internal hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. And he went to the doctor and said, no, doctor, you have to look at this. This is going right. to, this, and the doctor's like, there's no way you know this. What are you talking about? The doctor looked and it saved his son's life. And, and Philip K. Dick went around, he claimed he went around reality. He was in the Bay Area. I think he might've been in LA at this point, mm -hmm. but he went around reality in a full-blown psychotic break where he could see that he was living in modern America, but he was also a Christian during Roman times. Mm -hmm. He was experiencing both realities simultaneously. So for him, it was like Rome had never fallen, and he was living in this kind of, like, 
historical era simultaneously. So wait, this this is a real experience. He had he. This he, is not like this is. This isn't a story he made yeah. up. He wrote about it because right. he was he was a very interesting fellow. I can't. We cannot wait to do him for what, what, part of darkness. What was what was the like precipitating event? Right. Yeah. I mean, you, this you, sounds you, like this sounds like the kind of thing where somebody like fell down and bumped their head. I can't remember if or, there was a. If it was like, oh, I dropped acid and this happened, but I don't think right. it was something like that. I'm not, I wasn't thinking about this recently, but it's such an interesting thing. You can find the comic if you just look up R. Crumb, Philip K. Dick. It's so interesting. And that idea of, of history being layered on, you were talking about Facebook and meta early and earlier and everything, like almost like we live in a simulation of history itself now. Ah, I, there's no punchline to any of this. I just think it's fascinating. Yeah, no, have you ever sincerely question whether or not we're living in a simulation. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think in many cases we, I think when you say we live in a simulation, you have to well, could, say could, could, explicitly could, what you mean, because yeah. in terms of our, our human reality, like just what we are as humans, we absolutely live in simulation, in a simulation in the sense that like language is completely artificial. Our yeah. environment is totally mediated. Very rarely do we, we encounter anything that's real in the sense of um, natural, in the sense of pure nature. So in that sense, we live in a simulation. Now, if you want to talk about the super, like the God mind idea, that's a different idea. But our just day-to-day -day reality is is almost wholly artificial. So in that I sense, think, we do. I think that's a great way of framing it. Yeah. And we actually had a really good conversation with Deeper Thrill last night about this relating to AI. And people's perceptions of AI is kind of like a god mind that could control everything. Yeah. Versus the practical day-to-day -day realities of building AI. Yeah. And you know this is you know pertains to biomedical devices and things like that. But it was you know they're tethered to a reality you know day to day by that. But it's something that when I think of a simulation, I would tend to default to that popular culture of you know there's there's a man or somebody We're in the pulling, matrix. There's somebody pulling the strings. There's some architect of all of this mm. and. The truth is, you know, our minds are have been hacked by big tech and by big media, and, and education, and, and education, and even the English even, language, even, even the language, yeah, even our daily routine, like even three meals a day, like it. it there, there's so many things that are scripted for us, and we don't really think about it. We think we have. To I eat four. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go out for dinner after. Yeah, this yeah, just, we'll have you know, a stack. Perfect. Yeah, I got to work on it. Will take bit. us out. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So I, I want to go back to a little bit to to Minnesota and what's going on there because we were talking a little bit about you know last time we got together about how crazy it got and it's somebody that's from that area mm. you know what it was like so wait were you in New York during this time I or were you where were you is that all right if I I'm gonna I'm gonna stand and go use the restroom real quick is time that out all right? for a second is that all right to yeah, time out yeah, okay time out cool. So you we're talking about geriatric millennialism, but, you know, I think about, you know, my first experience with the internet. I think, I remember my dad buying a computer. It was a Microsoft computer and I was probably an eighth grade, a freshman in high school. And I remember dialing up on AOL and getting on instant messenger. Yeah. <laughs> well, remember, remember whenever, 
you would because you didn't have you there'd be like one phone line. It's a big deal to have a dedicated line. Yeah, having a dedicated line. I remember. So usually, you know, you would gravitate towards, hey, I want to get on at night, and then your parents couldn't get calls. They'd be the phone, and they're like, we get off the internet, you know, and you'd be like, oh gosh, you know. But we we loved it, but it was so rudimentary, so basic, clumsy, mm. and uh, but we loved it. I remember being on AOL, AOL Instant Messenger, mm-hmm. and but there was just so much. There were limitations to the internet, but we had a wonderment about it. Netscape browser. I Everything remember. took forever to load. You've got OCD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think the thing that we had <laughs> that I'm really appreciative for now is that we've seen like those struggles of like trying to get online and, you know, not being dominated by a phone. And, you know, and now it's so much different. Yeah. And so, you know, young people today are not just Internet natives, but it's really the smartphone. Mm-hmm. The smartphone is the big thing. Yeah. You know, we, we, and I think we can manage that a little bit better because we remember what it was like before. Yeah. Where their, their, their life is really here. Mm. Whereas like yeah. we had to go, okay, so we think about, you know, girls approaching a girl, mm-hmm. you would have an apprehensiveness about, I got to go talk to, you know, yeah, a Betsy, little anxiety. Like, you gotta, what am I going to You got to get the phone number. You got to get past the parents. You got to make past, a phone call. Yeah, you the had parents all, are going to pick up the phone. Yeah, I remember that. Remember that. Mm-hmm. And you hope that she picks up the phone. Sure. And then you got to ask. Remember that? You got to ask for her. Right. Hey, is she, you know, yeah. so-and-so there? We used to have a society. Right. We used to have a society. <laughs> and you had to go through all of that. And I think it was really good. Like that mm. kind of anxiety and having to work through it. Yeah. was a positive thing. And now what I've noticed is, you know, with dating apps, everybody's looking at their phone. Mm-hmm. Even whenever they're out and about and they're in the real world, they're looking at their phone. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. We, we're all become guilty of that. But mm-hmm. at least we are at least we're aware of it. Right. Men our age, people our age knew, know what it was like to have a rotary phone. You didn't always have a phone. You had to check in with people. You had to say, I'm going to be at this place at this time. And if you weren't, it started to get to be a problem. No, you had to be a you had to be a man of your word. If you mm. didn't show up, like that's that that's and there's no way to that was it. That you was give it. somebody fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. Ah, we're going into the movie without him. Right, that was it. Yeah, yeah. So, so you do you have kids? Yeah. Okay. How old? I have a thirteen year old daughter, and I have a uh, a, a baby boy who's a awesome. year and a half, and I have a little bean on the way. Awesome! Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. So with your so your thirteen year old daughter. Yes. She is. She's very in it. She is on her tablet when we want to call her because she's back in Minnesota with her mom right now. And we want to call her so she can talk to her brother. I don't have to think twice. I've got her on an app. I dial. She picks up, which I found to be a little alarming. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, yeah. I call it occasionally. I'm hoping she doesn't pick up because I'm hoping she has something else going on. She's got that tablet. And uh, it is what it is. Yeah. 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 But it's like as a parent. How do you monitor that? It's got to be difficult. Yeah, we try to try to control what she's doing on there with some parental controls and everything. But there's also a, a huge degree of trust mm-hmm. with her. I'm we're having conversations. I'm having conversations with her pretty regularly about, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing there right now? What's going on? You try to pick up a sense of she trying to hide anything with what right. she's doing. Right. So I think it's about keeping those those channels open. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that's important. But one of the things I want to kind of touch on is that I've noticed yeah. is, you know, with us having to, you know, 
navigate these things without having a smartphone and without swiping right and meeting people that way yeah and having to deal with the anxiety and the apprehension and all the you know the things that you have to go through you know going yeah. walking up to a girl at a bar needing a good line yeah people aren't meeting that way anymore they, right I, no I, by and large yeah no but what i've noticed is i think whenever you have a digital device or an app in between you and meeting another person and that's the context and how you meet that other person it lessens the experience to a certain extent. It's less organic. Hmm. And that's something I'm really concerned about, like for young people. Yeah, and yeah. I've noticed it with you know a lot of younger guys hmm. and their struggles in trying to meet girls. They're kind of forced into using these apps. This is something that we were talking about off mic before about how important it is for people to learn how to do something that involves public speaking. I'm a huge devotee of the theater. Right. I'm right. a playwright. I'm interested in the theater as an antidote to a lot of this stuff. Go right. into an acting class. Uh, if you're not into that, go do some sort of co-ed sport. Join a, like a volleyball team or something. Right. Find that thing that forces you to put the device down and work those muscles as a young person intentionally. Really go after it now. I, right. is, what is my best advice because you'll stand out as somebody who it, it can have a conversation and can be a raconteur, somebody who can just pick up a conversation with, that, with anybody. That is a valuable skill. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. And one of the things, too, I, I think about is, um, you know, about hobbies. Yeah, yeah. Like the hobbies that we had growing up, you know, we – we had to do a lot of reading. Like, I mean, I was a bookworm. You had oh, yeah, to read me too. for entertainment, reading the Hardy Boys, you know, um, yeah. National Geographic. I mean, I had to travel the world through books. Sure. That's really how we did it. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you remember very early pre-internet were the Encarta CDs that yes. you would get? They'd have yes. 12 CDs. You would click a hyperlink, this proto-hyperlink, please enter CD6. Yeah. And sometimes you would get you get frustrated. You go, I don't want to switch the CD again. So you would just stay in the neighborhood to not have to switch the disc out. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now it's just boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So in a certain way, it kind of cheapens the experience mm. in terms of like having to, you know, seek out information and really, really work for it. Mm. You know, I think about going to the library and what was it? The Dewey Decibel oh, I... System? <laughs> yeah. Is that what Dewey... it was? Yeah. The Dewey Decibel System. Yeah. yeah. Where you would have Which to like, completely you incoherent. would have to go like, you know, there's cards Ah, uh, the cards. You'd have to go get the cards to yeah. reference the book and where it is on the shelf. Yeah. And you had to fight for information. It was a struggle. You know, this makes me think of one of my favorite movies, Ghostbusters, and the way that <laughs> the the library figures so heavily at the beginning of Ghostbusters. This really is the one of the ultimate nerd movies. And the there's the I love Ghostbusters. The Dan Aykroyd. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The goo and the the muck all over the the old the cards in the library. And yeah. no human being would stack books this way or whatever it is with right. the books are stacked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later in the movie, Egon Egon says, uh, print is dead. <laughs> <laughs> are you ser- wait, are you yeah, serious? He does. You remember that yeah, line? yeah. Yeah. Ge- uh, is it gen- print is dead. Print is dead. Yeah. yeah. Well he the the secretary, uh, is it Janine? Uh, starts to dude, you've got great recall. I know. I've I've seen Ghostbusters twenty times. The yeah. the actor who played uh, the mayor, he did a reading of one of my plays. He's since passed away, but I did have to. I had to give him a hard time. You know, I said, Lenny, yeah, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. <laughs> and he gave me a look. Um, but yeah, great movie. But yeah, yeah, no. He, he Egon says because she starts flirting with him. When he, do, you, do you have any hobbies? Do you like to read? Blah blah blah. And, and Egon peeks his head up and says, print is dead. 
<laughs> no, but that this, this it's such a yeah. it's such a ridiculous no, but, joke. But 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 this really you think about the movies that were made during the eighties and nineties. And there was so much foresight in these movies about what might be coming around. Yeah. I remember watching They Live. Woo, all time. Remember great They film. Live? Oh yeah. We all They Live, We Sleep. Rowdy Roddy Piper. Dude, and, and I think all about now like, you take a wrestler and make him a lead actor, and it's totally a B movie. That movie you know who's a huge fan of that movie is Slavoj Žižek, the, the great Slovenian really? pop culture philosopher. Yeah. yeah, he has a. There's that movie, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, where he he embeds himself in these different films and gives these little mini lectures on ideology. Is it The Pervert's Guide to Cinema or The Pervert's Guide to Ideology? In any case, it's the Slavoj Žižek film, and one of the movies that he immerses himself in in that film is they live and it's like his favorite movie john carpenter you yes. gotta watch they yes. live but then you also have to watch halloween three season of the witch do you know about halloween three no halloween three is the movie uh in the halloween series where they were going to flip it and turn it into an annual serial serialized concept where michael myers has nothing to do with halloween three the rest of the series is all michael myers halloween three is about some weird Irish cult on Halloween is going to do something nefarious, but they're doing it through the television. You got to watch Halloween 3. Halloween 3 season of The Witch is, has more in common with They Live than it does with the rest of the Halloween series. That's really interesting. They Live well, now awesome. I have to watch it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I think about these movies and just how timeless they are yeah. and how they had this incredible foresight. And we're kind of living through it now. The, but, yeah. but there's an incredible amount of nostalgia. This is what I've noticed. And so, you know, we lived through this. We saw this in our youth. But a lot of the Zoomer generation. So I guess this is people born after maybe 2000, 2001. So now they're in like their early 20s. Yeah, the boomers are bussing for real, for real. <laughs> that's, that's all I know. I just, I just yeah. want to fit in. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> the Zoomer generation, they'll, you know, they're in the vapor wave and synth Vapor wave, wave is cool. And Soviet wave is one I learned about oh, from Soviet wave. I don't know if I like that. Yeah, that's well, that's what Lasad Corday told me. Uh, is about. it okay? If it's you good, know, he, okay. He told right. me about Soviet. All wave. right. Yeah. yeah. So like, there, there's these you know, these music genres that are you know, like like with synth wave. You have got like the '80s synthesizer. Yeah. And it's got this like mix of gunship, like, like a Miami Vice aesthetic, yep. and it's Japanese, and it's got and it's got all this crazy stuff in it. Yeah. But they love it, and so it's kind of remaking. Uh, and bringing that nostalgia from the 80s yeah. back into like the modern into mm -hmm. the modern world yeah. and it's really taken off and it's and it's cool to see it uh, yeah, but, but I there's like just something these like weird it. new internet aesthetics yeah. that are that are popping up and the slang and everything from the darker stranger corners of Twitter where I tend to dwell I like that stuff I like internet culture yeah. And I, I enjoy when it crosses over into the real when you meet somebody and you can start talking about how everything's based and red pilled and we're cozy maxing here in Miami. I enjoy that. Yeah. I like the internet. There's a quality to the internet recently where with COVID and the lockdowns and everything, I think a lot of people kind of just surrendered to the fact that things were going to be lived more in, in screen world, right. remote work world. I, I kind of, in a funny way, I hate to say it, I feel primed for it. I feel like right. it's kind of finally like our time and my time. I feel like That's I'm... It, 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 same but, way. I feel yeah. the same, exact same. And my, the last play that I wrote, I'm going to get a shill in here, but the last play Let's that I wrote is called Moderation, and it's at moderationplay.com. There's a podcast adaptation of it. We've yet to do it in real life, but it's had four readings, all on Zoom, 
all by different theaters. So it's not just in my head. Somebody sees some merit in this play. It's a two-hander, so it's two actors. And it's about social media content moderators losing their minds at work. And that play is one of those funny things where I, I wrote it. I have mixed feelings about it now. It's something you write and you go, well, I purged that from my psyche. It's kind of an, uh, it's, it's yeah. a dark comedy. It's kind of an, there's an ugliness to the play because I'm trying to reflect the ugliness that I see in social media and how it's degraded so much of, of life. Um, and it's one of these funny things where I'll get to talking with these theater folk about the play and they go, yeah, your play, it's just, it's so timely and it's only getting more topical and relevant. And I'm like, I know, <laughs> boy, I really wish it was that I wish we weren't doing this on zoom. Cause I wrote this to be done in the room, in the theater. Cause part of the point of the play is to take these characters who are living entirely in their screens for their jobs and to put them in real life on stage. But in any event, uh, I do think about this stuff a lot. That play ha deals with AI. It deals with social media. It deals with, uh, kind of anxiety, young male anxiety about what the future of work is going to look like and what the male role is in that world. There's a lot in that play that I think people, again, on our side of Twitter tend to re respond to and go, wow, that's a play. You can write that. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. It's one of the things I love about the theater is that it's so nobody's stopping you from writing a script and getting two actors together and doing something right. that has always appealed to me. Making a movie. And I and again, I do the screenwriting, too, but getting to get the energy together and the, the resources together to make a film, you can do it and you should, but it's just not like what you can do with really dirt poor, really cheap theater. So, yeah. No, that actually reminds me, we're going to have a guest on the podcast uh, or on the show next week that actually, you know, produce an independent movie in Hollywood. That's and awesome. He has got an incredible story. Yeah. And it's actually somebody that if he actually comes here to Miami, I would love for you to meet him because I'm sure you guys could share stories. Yeah. But it was a Herculean effort to get this movie produced. It is. When somebody can actually produce and make a movie, I have so much respect for that. My uh, screenwriting partner is a director, Abby Lucas, and she's on her way to doing her first feature film. Uh, as a woman director, she's she's just thrilled about that. And you know, we write our screenplays and everything. And at some point, we're finally going to, kind of bite the bullet and stop writing these screenplays that are purely on spec that are just screenplays we're writing. We want them as calling cards. We want to make these movies one day, but if you're, if you're going to write a movie for you and your crew to make, you've got to keep in mind certain things while you're writing to keep the budget down. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Let's talk about that. So yeah, yeah. You know, this show is really geared in for young men and oh, yeah. exposing them to bright minds mm -hmm. and, showing them what opportunities may exist that they may not be aware of. Yeah. So if you're, you know, let's say a guy in your late teens, early mid twenties, and you're a great screenwriter and you have all these great ideas, what's the best medium of expression? How do you kind of get in the game? Yeah. I don't know that I would be the best person to give advice uh, about that because, but I, I would say if I, I mean, if, if I was somebody in that situation right now, I would, you want to try to get into the industry. So I would move to LA still, even now and write, you just got to write, you got to, uh, you know, uh, write as much as you can. And, uh, again, getting into the industry, being around the industry, doing coverage, it is an industry, right? It is a business like any other. If you want to be in tech, 
you might want to move to Austin or Silicon Valley. You've got to treat it like it's a job job right? Uh, and not like it's some fantasy that's always over there or somebody, somebody else, uh, you know, is doing it. It's screenwriters are working. Screenwriters are working people working a job just like anybody Absolutely. else. And they work yeah. probably harder than anybody else. Yeah. They, they, work, I mean, they, they mm -hmm. make actors look great. Yeah. I mean, actors are constantly looking for great scripts. Yeah. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio has talked about this. He said, you know, when he's taking these breaks, people will ask him, what are you doing? He said, well, I haven't seen a script yeah. that's worth working on. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah. mean, there's just, there's, there, there's always a need for fresh content for creative people, great minds. We went out and we yeah. had some meetings around, uh, this adaptation we were doing of my play, If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn, which had a, it premiered in New York City. My friend Lenny was in it, Lenny Platt. And this was years ago. I think it was 2011 it was in New York City. And we adapted it into a TV concept. This eventually became Money Shot, which you can find at moneyshotshow.com. We did those ourselves. Those are just, it's just a web series. It's in the New Zealand Web Festival. We. Yeah, we just made those ourselves at the kind of at the recommendation of some Hollywood types that we met. Mm -hmm. They're like, look, just make it yourself. Do right. something yourself. Right. A lot of this stuff is based on existing IP. I mean, you hear these stories now of people who have this concept for a screenplay. They'll even go so far, people with money uh, will go so far as to hire a novelist or work with a writer to like write or ghostwrite some genre fiction that they can then use as IP to then package into a screenplay. Wow. So it's not just about, it's not just about, wow. sitting, you know, we, we all want to be Sylvester Stallone, but that's right? An, but that's another layer of, of yeah. effort and also expense. Yeah, for sure. But if you can get something, if you can get other people attached to it who have standing in the industry, or you can attach yourself to something uh, that has some sort of a real world connection that can go a long way. Like I was saying, you, we all want to be Sylvester Stallone. We all want to work, write Rocky in a month and then do the heroic thing and refuse to let anybody else play Rocky and then immediately become an A-list celebrity. But right. It, Which, I mean, he put yeah. it all on the line. Oh, yeah. That's a great story. I mean, that, that, that was really a make or break type of thing. Yeah. What a great story. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. You think about what Rocky, what were your favorite Rocky movies? Just non sequitur here. I just, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of that whole fran franchise, but. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, it, the first, the second one. Yeah. I was kind of like, eh. Yeah. I loved the third with is, Mr. T as Clubber Lang. <laughs> I need to And watch. then Rocky Four with yeah. Dolph Lundgren as uh, Don Drago. Right. And then in the fifth one, you had Tommy Morrison. Hmm. Which they get into this epic street fight. Okay, it's so fucking corny. You know, talking about, about it, they right? live like epic street. <laughs> Put on the glasses. Yeah. Put on the glasses. This fight that goes on for it. Such they live. Oh getting, my gosh, you're, you're, that that was a crazy scene. It's amazing. They got knocked out five times and kept fighting each other. It, well, because it's like we hired these wrestlers, these professional wrestlers, to yeah. be in this movie. I'm just thinking of the way that uh, John Carpenter must have pitched that to them, and what movie they thought they were making, and what the movie right. actually is. Because of course, the movie well, is this metaphor for media and the way that media is brainwashing everybody. It's just such a genius film. There's never been it's, another film like They Live. It is It is absolutely brilliant, and people need to go watch it because there's yeah. so many lessons to be learned from it. You know um, what the character's yeah. name is? The main character's name is Nada. Nothing, yeah, 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 he didn't have a name, did he? Nada. Yeah, no one ever, yeah. Yeah, it's just and so... He was just, and it was just like he was this, you know, strapping guy yeah. that was like working class that was basically 
you know, like a day laborer. Yes, he's like a he, day laborer who yeah. arrives in L.A. and he's in this world of it's this recognizable world, and he finds this oh. he finds the glasses in the church, in the and church, then he can see the world for what it is. There was Obey. so there was there was also another movie with Michael Douglas, and I can't remember the name of it. Hmm. Falling down. Falling down. Falling down. Thank you. <laughs> Falling down. I, oh man! But it, when you think about it, was like this L.A. This was these were shot like back in the nineties. Yeah, think. yeah. But it was showcasing L.A. as this multicultural, you know, jungle of all these different kinds of people with huge wealth Traffic. inequality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Robert Duvall was in this movie as well. He had a great. He was great great yeah, this yeah, movie. Yeah. Oh, but been... you think this is one that people need to go see too sure it was basically a man that had tried to play things the right way yeah and um he had some issues yeah, yeah. but um it was just a brutal brutal world that he was living in and la was really a backdrop to that there's that bukowski poem about i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about bukowski with no shame there's that poem where he he talks about madness and how how people think that madness is something that comes from something like extreme. And he's like, it's not something ex extreme. It's that final time that you, that, a, that a, your shoelace snaps at the wrong right. moment. And the last line of the poem is something like, so be careful when, when you bend over. Right. To no. tie your but shoes. you know what? It, so you, you think about it. So much of our life is mundane and routine. And you'll have these moments where it's like a real experience. Yeah. And it's and it doesn't happen all the time. There's a few moments in your life where it happens where it's truly real. Mm. But um, anyway, I, I want to kind of highlight something that you said here. And you were talking about if you want to go write plays, if you want to go write for television, you want to yeah. go write movies, you need to go move to Los Angeles. You need to go move somewhere. That's an excellent point because mm. there's there's certain places that are energy hotspots where people in a certain field in a certain industry need to go. Not only because you need to socialize with the right people, but you need to feel that energy. Yeah. And so even though a place like L.A. has all of its issues and it's very, very hard to network, I mean, it, it's hard to meet the right people, you need to go through that struggle. You need to go, work, you need to go through that. I think these things have their, they have their natural vetting processes to they see do. how serious somebody is. In terms of the theater, I would say just start writing plays, but also go into the theater. Find, and if you're in the middle of nowhere or you're not in Chicago, you're not in LA, you're not in New York City, or you're not in London. Uh, I went into, the, the first theater that I went into was a community theater in North Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And in, in a few short years later, I was, I was getting paid to write plays on these fellowships and things. So there's a, seri there's a yeah. seriousness that you have to bring to it. You can't write for the theater if you're not in the theater. You right. might be able to fake it, you might get one lucky shot, if you write something that's very, you spill your guts and it's a unique, you, maybe you have a unique voice or position, you might get a one-off, but it's like, you have to go into the thing. If you want to write plays, go and act. Right. Uh, the thing I say is, you're going to write a symphony without playing an instrument? I don't think so. So even if you don't want to act professionally, you have no pretense toward it, at least know what you're doing because as a writer, if you're writing plays or screenplays, you're writing for actors. Right. And if you can get, if Leonardo DiCaprio decides your screenplay is the screenplay he wants to do, you're made. Right. Well, how are you going to get him a screenplay that he wants to do? You got to know what an actor wants to do. Right. There are no, there, when we say there are no small parts, like in the theater, it's very much true. If you're going to, if you're going to jam up an actor's life for 10 weeks to do a regular play, you better not have a character in there who is extraneous. Every right. line has to count. Every right. scene has to count. 
Uh, and the quickest way to learn that is to buy, is to go in and actually act, and you very quickly discover why actors want to do this play and not this play. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just so well done. I mean, there's going to be a lot of other people that you're competing with, and you want to be the first one in. Oh, my God. When I was in London at the Royal Court Theater uh, in their Young Writers Program, which is this incredible program, it was life-changing for me, one of the things that they did for us is they took us into the back room and showed us the script submissions. And the script submission pile was maybe 10, 10, 10 scripts on the floor, piled high, up to like my neck mm. and they're like, that's your competition. This is the, these are the submissions this place gets. We read all these scripts. You learn very quickly. You can't mess up the formatting. Okay. You, so let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. How much, how many pages does it take for someone to look at a script before they're interested or it goes in the junk pile? Three to five. That's what I was, I was thinking. Three to five. It, it, honestly, it could be one or two or and three, I'm, but it's not going to be that many pages. And I'm judging your script. If, if I'm reading for something, I'm judging your script before I even read the first line. I'm judging how is it formatted? Mm -hmm. uh, how, if it's a play, does it start with two pages of stage directions? If it does, I'm not interested. Partly that's bias. Because I'm very, very the school that I come out of. Is that because they're getting into minutiae without getting into the meat of it? It's just not how theater is. It's just not how we write theater. Unless, okay. uh, the, unless the stage directions are completely, absolutely necessary, uh, I say cut them. Okay. Uh, now there might be some exceptions to this. If somebody's doing something really wild, where it's very clear they're they're creating a world and it's it's setting a scene and it's extraordinarily theatrical, I'm willing to to make an exception. But if it's like Joe enters from the left with a cup of coffee. He sets the cup of coffee down on the table. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's this. It's yeah. like no, no, no. Yo, 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 yo. Yeah. Let's right. cut to the chase here. We're right. theater is all about dialogue. It's one of the reasons that television, very famously, over the past twenty years of its renaissance, uh, they've I suppose twenty five years now, but they've been hiring playwrights based purely on plays that aren't, aren't even necessarily that successful, but hiring playwrights from New York, from wherever, to, to write television, to be in the writer's room, because playwrights are famously pretty strong at dialogue. Mm -hmm. And one of the weaknesses that I have as a, as a would-be screenwriter is that my, my screenplays, it's just a lot of words. <laughs> it's a lot of dialogue. And yeah. I have, and it's in film is a visual medium. And so that's something I struggle with. I'm aware of it. We're going to adapt moderation into a movie. And I think we're going to make it ourselves. Excellent. There, there may, we may be passing the hat online at some point to do this, but I want to make a movie for like a quarter of a million, half a million dollars, something wow. we can do. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. That people do it. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things I, I want to come back to, too, so you've lived in, like, New York. Yeah. So it's a hyper-competitive environment. Yes, it is. I lived in L.A., and I had a short stint where I was exploring acting and left, jumped off a cliff. He was working at a major company and decided I want to do something entirely different. Went to the Beverly Hills Playhouse, met a bunch of great people, doing scene studies. And one of the things I, I took out of it hmm. was that a lot of people, and this is on the acting side, but I think the principle still applies. There were a lot of people that went to the playhouse and got totally caught up in the, um, I don't want to say the politics, but just kind of the, the inner workings of the playhouse and all of it. Basically I, I had this theory that a lot of actors go to LA 
because they think they want to act, but that what they really want to do is go fuck other actors. <laughs> okay, yeah. you yeah, know what yeah, I mean. Yeah. And so, so it's kind of what no happens doubt. is they go there, yeah, and they have a real intake. I think I want to do this. I'm the best looking person. I'm the most talented, you know, in mm -hmm. Ohio or mm -hmm. in Arkansas sure. or in wherever it is. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm the best looking person, and I'm going to go to L.A. and I'm going to make it. And they go there and they join a playhouse. Now they're usually funded by somebody else. That's another thing I learned. Is that in Los Angeles? There's a lot of people that are there on a on a borrowed hand. Someone else is is funding them, helping them get off the ground, whatever. And this can go on for a long, long time. Oh yeah, oh, you yeah. know. Uh, but hey. um, and they're paying. They're eventually people get tired of it, or they have to go home. Watch Watch Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. That's is, a great movie. Uh, is about that. And I love Mulholland Drive. That's a great film. I, met, I, and, I love, and I love the actual Mulholland Drive. I've ah. driven many, many times. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful, inspiring place, you yeah. know. But back to the, you have to be focused. You have to be focused. And so when you go into, like, again, one of these hyper-competitive markets like Los Angeles or in the New York, you know, your, your living expenses are going to be high, and you've got to find a way. Like, you've bar, got to be totally focused. Tab. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't be distracted by the dating life or anything. Like, have a good time, but it's always a focus has to be on the work. Mm. And I think it, and this would apply to, to writing as well. But when it comes to acting, you have to be auditioning. Yeah, you have to uh, you have to focus on auditioning ahead of everything else because they're looking for a look, they're looking for a vibe, and you can become a good actor over time. But you've got to have some material to work on, and so if you're just getting caught up in acting school, or you're doing scene study, or you're doing private training, and that takes up all of your energy, yeah, you're not doing what you need to be doing. It's, it, it's got to be the same thing with writing. It's you a need to write. Yeah, you need to be writing. It's a job. If you, if you start to think of it as a job, like any other job, and you treat it that way, it will return dividends. And for me as a playwright, I understand the role of the playwright in America uh, is an unusual one. And I have my, my own personal goals from my plays mm -hmm. that are pretty divorced from trying to feed my family. <laughs> yeah. Right. So of course, one day I, I would, I would love to, to break through. I would love to make a, a film. I would love to write on a television show, uh, and, and be paid as a, as a working TV writer and all the rest of it. But I have another life that's adjacent to it. Um, and in, in a funny way, I think that, that there's a strength to that too. Um, I remember down at UT, we got to meet Lawrence Kasdan who wrote, uh, Empire Strikes Back and wow. the Indiana Jones movies. And his story that he told us, uh, and I hope I'm not going to butcher it, but his story is really fascinating because he was living in Michigan and he was an advertising guy. And he had, he was very successful as an advertising dude. Mm -hmm. And he had won awards doing that. He, his story goes something like, he saved up enough money to move to LA and become a screenwriter for one year. He had that nut. Mm -hmm. and enough money so that he could drag his his wife and i think he might have had a kid he moved to la uh and again if i'm butchering this i apologize but the the story as i remember it is he moved to la worked for a year was shopping his scripts around and it was like two weeks before he's like well i'm gonna have to go back into advertising so he had that thing he could fall back on but he right. really pulled the rip rip right. and went for it and in the like final two weeks Spielberg, Spielberg, Spielberg was coming off of a little movie called Jaws and Lucas was coming off of a little movie called Star Wars. These guys were taking <laughs> over Hollywood. Yeah. Famously taking over Hollywood and the world changing the world. And uh, Spielberg and somebody else got into like a bidding war over one of his scripts 
And then I think Spielberg bought one of the scripts. I can't remember all the details, but in a, in a couple of weeks, he sold two scripts and was in a meeting with Spielberg and Lucas. And they said, we want you to, I want you to write Empire. And we have an idea for, um, for this kind of 1930s serial mm. archaeologist hero. And they did Indiana Jones. Stories like that happen. But they happen to guys who are grinding and who have, have put the work in, have the scripts, are there, are shopping their stuff around, and have gone all in. And who knows if, if two more months he might have gone back into right. what if he had what if he had fallen into a you know met the wrong person gone to the wrong bar and for six months started messing around he's not then we don't get we don't get Empire the Empire Strikes right. Back so he's he's the guy what it's like luck is the intersection of opportunity and preparedness right so if you don't have those scripts ready if you're if you don't have your chops together you never get that shot and yeah there's an element of luck to that there is a, a right. certain element of luck right. but he that's a man who made his own luck yeah and that's the thing I mean it, it happened for him at the right time I mm -hmm. mean there's all these years that he had put into it but he jumped off that cliff he took that huge risk. And then really in the 11th hour, it worked out for him. I love stories like that, too, yeah. because it's like you get well, that, that's just If it wasn't for the last minute, nothing would get done. And that yes. really is true in life. Yeah. I mean, you can spend all this time, you know, you know, you know, plotting and planning. And then when it comes down to it, you need, you know, some kind of supernatural event, God's will, you know, the universe intervening to allow you to continue on to the next phase. But it won't let you do it if you don't put every single thing you have into it. There is something to that, and you got to keep. If it's like roulette, you got to keep putting the money in, keep putting the money in, and finally right. it's going to land. That's maybe not the best example because it's it's a bit of it's a crapshoot, right? It's roulette, but um, yeah, I, I enjoy stories like that because they are a reminder that you got to sort of stay in it and work on the next thing, finish things. One of the things I like about playwriting mm -hmm. uh, is that there's such a low barrier to entry. You can do it on a notepad and what do you really need? And then you start submitting plays. It's a great feeling. If you start writing plays and suddenly theaters start picking up the phone. Like I, I remember when I submitted, if you start a fire to this theater company in New York, I sent it to them the next day. They wrote back and said, we want to do your play in New York. And now I thought that was going to go on forever. That, right. that, if you're young and you're enjoying anything like that, really savor it and make the most of it. Cause it doesn't always last forever. Right. Uh, but moments like that are tremendous when you start to get a response to your work. Um, you know, we were talking about this art of darkness. The podcast that we're doing is a bit of a kind of a meta interrogation to into what drives these artists. Why do they do the things they do and, and how do they accomplish it? Right. And if there's one thing that I've taken away from that podcast and which is going to inform I'm heading into my forties here, it's going to <laughs> talk about geriatric millennial and I feel it. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we millennials are, some of us are, are we're getting a little long in the oh, tooth, man. You know? yeah. and, and every now and then we're reminded of it by the younger people. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, yeah. wait a second, guys. Yeah. In a relative context, mm. you know, 38, 39, 40 is not that old. Oh. But if you're 22 or 25, Ooh. yeah, you're anxious. Yeah, for real. Yeah. <laughs> Bussing for real, for real. <laughs> um, he said, uh, what was I talking about? No, so, we're talking about art of darkness. Art of darkness. Yeah. yeah. And so. But if there's one thing I, I am taking away from this is that they make things. They finish things. Right. Kubrick was a D student who, you know, uh, it wasn't he wasn't a total pariah. He had a girlfriend. 
somehow by the age of 17 or 18, he was already working as a staff photographer, not for Life magazine, but for, it was called Look magazine. I, okay, yeah, I've yeah. heard of that. Yeah. And he, he was already getting paid to be a photographer. And of course, if you know Kubrick's work, he's a photographer first. And within a few years of that, he'd raised enough money to grab a bunch of his friends, go to California and shoot The Killing which I think you can find on Amazon streaming. It's online. It qualifies as a feature film. It's only worth watching because Kubrick made it. It's about 60, 65 minutes long. It's not even what we would consider a proper feature mm -hmm. film now. He nearly killed his cast with a fog effect where he mixed. they mixed the chemicals wrong, but he made the movie, and he mm. dragged that movie back to Manhattan, uh, he was from the Bronx, but he dragged that movie back to New York City. It got a few screenings. And the critics, a few of the people said, there's something something here. There's material. And a few yeah. years later, he was directing Spartacus. He picked up Spartacus wow. from whatever. And he had done Paths of Glory. I mean, just absolutely incredible. He did it. He didn't wait around for permission. He didn't wait around for somebody else to anoint him. Right. He He got his uh, community together. There's a, a Jewish doctor or a dentist gave him, you know, funded the movie. <laughs> you know, right. he, a lot of these characters, uh, Zora Neale Hurston was like this. They, they're, they're not flim flam artists, but they have such a monomania, such a belief that they take over the scene that yes. they come into. This is something that we struggle a lot with. I think now these days is there's this anxiety about standing out too much or being too much. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's I mean not everywhere, but right. these people, I mean they are they have a vision and right. they're unstoppable in the pursuit of that vision. I th I think I think there's actually become a real negative connotation or you know people don't look favorably on person that has a relentless intensity and drive. Yeah. An unbridled ambition yeah. to go after something and pursue it to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And that's you know I was raised to be like that. Like, you know, go and take it, man. Nothing's stopping you. Yeah. There's no excuses. Go mm. make it. I mean, that's that's how my father was. Mm. If you can, if you go after it, dude. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed that that's something that, um, you know, we want to, people that are like that, that have a lot of energy, particularly young men, we want to stifle that, control it, tamp it down. And yeah. I think that's, we're really missing out. They call it the that. the tall poppy thing. Have you heard of this? No, the what is it? tall poppy syndrome. It's the tall poppy gets cut. Yeah, the tallest nail gets hammered first. That's what There's we're living that through. Beveling now. and that kind of, and then you know, one way to stand out is to kind of be a clown. You don't take yourself too seriously. I'm just a TikTok person, blah blah blah. But what are you? Are you making any well, art? Well, I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. And so I, I've noticed these people that make, they give things like a half-hearted effort. Yeah. And so what they do is if they go into a situation and they lose, they can say, "Well, I really wasn't trying." Yeah. There's that. It's that and, detached and, and, and irony. They, and if they win. It's like, well, imagine what I could do if I tried. Yeah, right, right, and right. And so it, they, they always have an out by never giving it max effort. Yeah. And you need to give everything a max effort. I, I look back on my you know, academic career, and I was always someone that just kind of did the bare minimum, was able to get by. Yeah. But what if I really applied myself? You know, yeah. I mean, like you just go back and you think about it, Like, I wish I would have had that kind of attitude mm. in, in, in that kind of thing. But hmm. Um, there's yeah. a, I just want to mention, there's yeah. a film that a friend of mine, we have like a little, uh, film club, uh, in Minnesota, just a group of friends, 
totally informal, but we do a round. And this is something anybody can organize, by the way. You can, you should be doing things like this in your life, uh, where you know you have a place, you, you, and we just show a, a different movie every two weeks, and everybody picks gets a turn to pick. Yeah. So it becomes this kind of funny DJing where it's like, well, we just watched Bridge Over the River Kwai, so that made me think awesome of, movie. That's an all-time love, great movie. Love that Alec movie. Alec Guinness. Yeah. Yeah, all-time great film. So yeah. good. Yeah. That movie is, there's never been a greater film made than that. Uh, yeah, and then we'll pick different movies. I'm getting ready to show American Psycho. All right. Oh, Modern yeah. classic. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have to return some videotapes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so good. And that movie yeah. is so good for memes, too. It's such a yeah. meme-worthy movie. Uh, Christian Bale is one of my favorite actors. He's so good. But um, what was I talking about? So we were, we were doing these movie screenings. I can't remember what we were talking about before. Uh, we were talking about getting people together and, and, and watching movies every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And how everybody should be doing this. And it's almost kind of like a homework assignment. Or do, oh. you, do you all get together? Oh, yeah. No, I remember this. Yeah, yeah. We all we all do it together. We have dinner. and So you watch, it, you watch it together. And yeah, you, we watch it together. Yeah. And, then, and then the next person picks. But one of the picks... Uh, my friend Dan picked. You bet, and that's the thing. If someone picks a bad movie, uh, I know it was a bit of a. I showed I showed the guys uh, Lost Highway, and that was a bit of a difficult one. That night was a little difficult. It was a little rough. I don't know if I picked the right movie at the right time. It was a bit of an outlier because one of our one of our uh, friends was away. Regardless, my friend uh, Dan suggested uh, a movie called Sound of My Voice. You heard of this film? Mm -mm. This is a great example of a low budget movie. I can't remember the name of the outfit. They're they're quite well known now. They were like the Sundance darlings for a few years. Mm. They made a series called The OA, which mm -hmm. apparently it's like a big Netflix series. I want to watch it. But Sound of My Voice is this very nuanced, sly interrogation into the mentality of a cult mm. that is done on like no money, no budget at all, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but not, we're not talking about millions. And it's a movie, it sticks with you. It isn't, it isn't The Shining. It's what's, not- what's, what's the genre? It is, it's like an indie film. It's is an it indie horror? psychological drama about yeah. a cult. It, it seems like a lot of the low budget movies yeah. are like horror or psychological well, thrillers for some reason. Well, yeah, it's because those genres can can play and, and the returns are potentially You don't need all the effects and you don't need to pay someone a lot of money. Yeah. Well, people... the highest, the high, I think one of the highest grossing films of all time is, um, oh darn, what's it called? Uh, I know it's what you're paranormal, talking about. Paranormal. What was it? I, I, know, I know what movie you're talking yeah. about and we're going to have to look it up. Paranormal activity, I think. Is I don't know that what it's, it's called. It, it might be. I think it might be related to paranormal activity. Something we like might that. have come before that. But it's but it's like the Blair Blair Witch. I mean, if you is get it, your friends that's what together, I was of. Is it it's, like, it's. I think it's paranormal activity okay. made some outrageous number of millions of dollars and cost you know fifty thousand dollars to make. Right. So I mean, there's always the moonshot idea you can right. do in horror. I mean, that's like hitting a winning lottery ticket. Yeah, but they yeah. but they did it too. Right. You can't hold it against them. Right. They made something. They did it. I love that. So and I know my friend showed sound of my voice because my other buddy is just relentless. He's saying, "You Kevin, you gotta gotta write moderation as a screenplay. You gotta do." You know what I mean? So yeah, this is going into this year, going further along. Inshallah, the uh, the crypto market will come <laughs> back, and I'll just I won't have to go door to door begging. But at a certain point, we are going to flip the script and just go. We are going to make something on our own. You know, and David Lynch talks about this too in in his great book K 
Catching the Big Fish. Have you ever read this? Mm-mm. That's worth, if you're a fan of David Lynch, even if you're not and you're an aspiring artist, he's he's big into transcendental meditation, big into meditation, David Yeah, so is Lynch's. Ray Dalio, oh, the is financial he? guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this book is just about creativity. And he has, it's the kind of book that you could set in the in the restroom, in the bathroom, you know, just, or set it on a coffee table. And it's just, you pick it up and you can kind of grab... There are these very concise little, not even chapters, just a page or two. And it's like his little bits of wisdom on being an artist. And he's like, you know, many times you'll meet an artist who feels like a young artist who thinks they have to suffer more for their art. He goes, this is ridiculous. Life is going to throw you more than enough suffering. Right. Don't cater to it. Don't, Don't wallow in it. Wallow Don't seek it, it out. Yeah. yeah. It, brilliant point. Um, but in that book... <laughs> He's so cavalier about it too, but he's right. He says, don't worry about the money. Follow your art, mm-hmm. work on your art, and people will give you money. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and of course, he's David Lynch and he's an exceptional artist, but his right. story is so interesting too. When you think about him coming out of uh, uh, fine art school in Philadelphia, he's a painter and very touched with genius uh, and uh, made a short film it's just like called four men vomiting in suits or something. And it's just these suits vomiting. It's very strange, but he was moving into film and they saw that he was a genius and they, they gave him this fellowship out in LA and like free reign over these stables on some ranch. And he just spent years making a racer head. They thought he was, they thought he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Right. And then he made the all time great midnight movie, Eraserhead, And then he made, uh, the Elephant Man, to, and really showed them, I can go, I can do Normie. You need a Normie movie? I'll make The Elephant Man. And it right. got nominated for four Oscars. I think it won some Oscars. I don't know what my point is about that, but he, he, he I love that. That that point in um in that book, Catching the Big Fish, don't worry too much about the money. If you, f- you know, follow your art, be good, at, be good at your art, people will give you money. What faith? <laughs> like, yeah, well, you got, it's one of those things yeah. where you've got to be, super talented to begin with yeah but at the same time if you don't have that kind of mentality you're never going to get there like don't overthink that don't overthink that's exactly it and it's and 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 you would think oh well that's easy for you to say david lynch you're a world famous director well look at what happened with mulholland drive mulholland drive was supposed to be a television series and that first hour until they go into the box was more or less what he cobbled together from i think the pilot and maybe they had shot a couple of other episodes. I don't exactly know. And he had to go beg, or not beg, but go pitch people for enough money to finish it and make it a feature film. Right. And it's a beloved, recognized as a masterpiece by fans of David Lynch and just generally. And he, he went and got an extra X number of millions of dollars from the French. Right. Well, that, <laughs> Love and that, it. But that's something crazy yeah. is that you have someone that's super talented, super driven. And they still have to go cobble the funds together to make something happen. Yeah. I mean, you have to go get it. Yes. You have the talent. You have the ambition. You put the work in. But you, in many, many instances, with any new venture, you're going to have to go ask somebody else for money. Yeah. And they believe enough in you that they're going to make that investment know that you're going to generate a return for them. I mean, that, that's, that says a lot about him and how driven he was. But also, he had the ability to get people to invest in his projects and his dreams. I love it. And another great director, living treasure hero of mine is Werner Herzog. And uh, yes. Herzog, 
rather famously said that the first lesson he would teach in his film school would be how to commit forgery, how to forge documents. Your resume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, your res start with no, your this resume. Is, this is this is something I, I learned in, this is something I learned in LA too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that you know, people we're kind of taught to be good rule followers here in this country. Yeah. Like go do the right thing and whatever. Mm. Everybody has to manipulate mm. or massage their resume mm. when they get started to kind of get their foot in the door. Depending yeah. on what you're going after. Sure. I mean, that's just, a, that's just a bottom line. And I, and I don't mean fabricate things that are just far-fetched. They're going to get you in trouble. But what I mean is you need to act as if, and you need to find a way to frame things in such a manner that you're giving somebody what they want to see to get to the next stage. There is a lot of fake it till you make it in America, in the world. There yeah. is an element of you, you make yourself, you create yourself and become this thing. You got to be careful. Those are what the people you... we celebrate. Yeah. So we like a little bit of flim flammery. We do. We There's... do. We do. <laughs> There's room for we some flim flammery. Well, listen, Kevin, yeah. let's, let's take a little bit of a break. Okay. We're going to come back yeah. and I want to talk about what being based means. Oh. I want to talk about crypto. Oh, nice. And then we can talk a little bit about the state of America. Oh. So I hope you got a little bit more time. Look, I am I'm cozy, ma <laughs> cozy maxing in Miami. All right, great. We'll All be right. back in a minute. Base Brotherhood is back with Kevin Kautzman. So, Kevin, I want to talk a little bit about crypto because I know you're heavily involved in this space. Yeah. And it's been a rough last few days, last couple of weeks. Hide the knives. Yeah. And it's one of the things, you know, we were talking about with crypto is, you know, there's a lot of young guys out there that have done extremely well in crypto. And I think that's awesome. I mean, people making money in this disruptive technology, it's, it's a positive thing. But it's also kind of taken people out from the productive economy mm -hmm. where you've got a lot of smart young people that aren't starting real businesses. Yeah. And that's kind of, that sucks for society. You know, like we need people engaged in creating products, goods and services that, um, you know, building real businesses that, you know, the crypto market, you know, goes down 70, 80%. They're not, you know, zapped and, you know, psychologically destroyed by it. Yeah. People that are building real things. Yes. So I want to ask you a little bit about, like, what do you think is going on in crypto? What is your experience? Just start yeah. working for us. Uh, so full disclosure, I'm a paid moderator in the Floki chat. So I got really into Floki. Okay. Which uh, is, in, in terms of crypto, is maybe... For a lot of people, that's the gutter of crypto. These <laughs> puppy meme coins, right? That's how you can make a lot. You make a lot of money, though. Yes. Yeah. Uh, don't invest what you can't lose. So from day one, if you're putting in money that you're not willing to sleep on, turning into dust, you've already lost. Right. So if you're taking out a loan, that's going to wreck you. If you're selling a car, if you're doing any of these crazy, are we things, applying this to like? Like Bitcoin and Ethereum and like blue, I, blue chip look, type of I think so. Cryptos? I mean, Bitcoin right now is trading at around 35, 36. And at, at its all-time high, it was at 69. Right. Uh, ha, ha So I would say, yeah, for anything, but especially these these super alt derivative alt 
meme coins, they're going to, they'll correct 90%. If you look at SHIB, the the so-called Doge killer, the one that came after Doge, yeah. that thing corrected 90% multiple times before it finally mooned. Mm -hmm. So if you're uh, tapping grandma for a loan and it's going to make the holidays weird for the rest of your life, if it goes to dust, you're, you've already lost. So number one is don't invest what you aren't willing to lose. Partly too, because people, people don't know what they're doing, right? So no, if you're don't. setting up a MetaMask wallet and buying some random coin, you could get, you can get hacked. Uh, and, and again, if this is going to wreck you, don't do it. So the first thing, that's the very first rule of crypto, because then, uh, you know, if you, if it goes to dust, you've learned some things. If you invest $5,000 and it becomes, it triples in value or it doubles in value and you take out your principal, that's a strategy that some, some people have trading these, these super volatile altcoins mm -hmm. like Floki, uh, these, these tokens that appear on, uh, the Ethereum chain, a lot of, a lot of people will buy on day one, they'll buy a thousand dollars worth with the hope that it'll do a thousand X and they can, and they right. will, and they have. Uh, Floki, people who bought Floki on day one and sold the top, multimillionaires out of next to nothing. It can happen, but the reverse can happen. You can invest $20,000 thinking you've got the next Doge and it can go to $2,000 and suddenly, again, hide the knives. So you have to be smart about those investments. You got to educate yourself as much as you possibly can. I have a working thesis with, with Floki and it's, it, it is tied to Elon Musk, as ridiculous as it sounds. It's named after his dog. Uh, I didn't even know and, that. Yeah, no, it is. He, yeah, it's this whole thing. But I believe so. People are very cynical in crypto. Extremely cynical in crypto. Underneath the veneer of to the moon and all this garbage, <laughs> there's a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of scammers. There's just straight up con artists. There's a lot of these tokens just end up going to completely going to zero, uh, and they'll just wreck you if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but you can get lucky. There's a casino quality to it. But people will look at these meme coins and say they're bad for the space, blah, blah, blah. I think that memes are a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Floki, as a project, just as an example, and I've got a lot of bias here, of course. I'm, I'm a mod in the chat. It's so funny because my the last play I wrote is called Moderation. And now, without even trying, I became a moderator. How did that happen, chat. by the they, way? I was just very... It was the... I bought, okay, my crypto story is something like this. this. My, my friend Jose, who's an actor, now living in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, his wife does my, my bookkeeping. Uh, good friends, party animals, New York City. We had a lot of fun. We moved to Minnesota. They moved to Puerto Rico in the great kind of shakeup around COVID. Jose told, <clears throat> told me, told everybody, not last fall, but the fall before, he said, buy Doge, buy Doge. He had a ton of it. He got bored right around the turn of the new year. I got bored with it right around the turn of the new year. We both sold. Two weeks later, it it started to moon. It, it yeah. went from a fraction of a penny to some number of cents. And I watched it because I was in the middle of buying a house in St. Paul. And they don't like, there's another thing, if you're dealing with mortgage lenders and whatnot, they really don't like this, crypto. This is a great point yeah. because, you know, Holding more, you know, holding crypto yeah. and trying to get a mortgage is no, it, it almost doesn't count. It doesn't the, matter what you have. Yeah, it's really, it really threw a spanner in the works there. Well, so the point is I sold too early 
and I watched it go up and I was doing that horrible math where you're going. Cause I went over to, we got caught up in the GameStop garbage and my friend Jose went over to that. My friend Jose. We call it aping in. You were yeah, aping yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We aped into, I did make, I did make money in AMC, uh, but. Oh, good for you. Yeah, yeah. And Jose would have had, I think, some millions of dollars had he not sold. And this is a <laughs> an actor <laughs> friend of mine. Yeah. So like that's like life changing because he's oh, not a guy that's like oh he's like got a business person. Oh my yeah. god, he's yeah, he's an actor. This would yeah. have changed his life. And so he dealt with that. I would have had six figures worth of Doge, and I was watching it. And I was I went through a phase where I was trading. I really yeah. got into crypto. Yeah. I went, and it's going to be in my new play that I'm that I'm working on. Uh, you got to take every experience and, and, and do the alchemical process to turn it into art, right? Right. Well, so that really hurt. And I had my crypto investments. I was, I was watching. I, Jose actually recommended AMC right before it pumped. Thank you, Jose. So made a little money there. So I was looking for the next Doge. Yeah. So this SHIB thing comes along. <laughs> and I saw Jordan Belfort post something about SHIB. Really? I had a little bit of money in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I put more in it and suddenly I had a six figure bag of that. Now this time I didn't sell. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just showing <laughs> wait, my, and so, my gal. Wait, so do you know that like, I don't know what I'm doing? I mean, is Me? that like, so, yeah. Cause it's like, cause I go through, I went through this phase of yeah, getting yeah. in crypto over the last year to where I don't know anything. Yeah. So I got to be careful. And then I think I know a little bit. Yes. And then we had the May dump and I yep. realized I don't know shit. That's it. And so that's where I'm at kind of at now. And I watched, I watched SHIB. I rode SHIB all the way down. Yeah. So frustrating. And then I went into, and I sold finally at the end. I just was like, I capitulated. May just got me. And I was <laughs> back to where I started. And I'm just like, I, okay, I haven't lost any money in crypto. So I felt like in a funny way, I felt like I was ahead because I'm like, I've only been doing this six months. Yeah. I took a small bag to six figures. Now I'm back. All right. Now I'm going to start trying to trade. So I started trying to swing trade. That was, that's for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's, that's way a too much laugh. energy. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is something that a journey that we've all been on. Oh, I'm right. going to be rich. Uh, clearly I'm smarter than the market. You're not smarter than the market. You're never going to beat the market. It's going to dump overnight. The one time that you pull a stop loss. That's when it happens, by the way. Yep. You wake up the next morning and you're horrified. Yes. It's a nightmare. And then you have the, the morning capitulation, right? <laughs> and everybody wakes up and sells and then it pumps. It's ridiculous. And well, so I was watching and I, and I was looking for the next one. And then this Floki business came along and I'm like, you know what? I think this is probably going to be it. And it was absolutely nuts. I got in on V1, the V1 de developer. This is all over the news. You can, there's a Yahoo article about it and everything. If you get in the Floki chat, you can find me. Please don't uh, be like this stalker guy. Don't be crazy. <laughs> there's a lot of cra crazies in crypto. Like I'm a real a person. Lot. I'm a real person. I'm fully doxxed. I'm not, if I, you know. If I was some nefarious actor, I wouldn't be out there with my face and everything. So I'm just a community member who's very engaged. And we had to send our tokens over from V1 in an airdrop, or we had to, we had to send our tokens. And when that happened, I said, oh, this, is, we're, this money's gone. Well, yeah. I sent it over, and the team that took over going from V1 to V2 was legit. And it's these very, some very heavy crypto people 
There's some, a lot of very interesting things. And it came back and I bought more. And then for a while I was underwater. And then the hype came, the hype came. And then finally, again, it's, it sounds so stupid, but finally Elon got the dog. So now it's a real thing. We got a picture of, I was in the middle of recording a podcast when he showed a picture of the, the puppy Floki. And suddenly it, it spiked some ungodly percentage while I was doing this podcast. I'm watching the chart fly up. There was one dude, one person who bought the top of the first Elon Floki pump. I think he bought $400,000 worth of it and, and capitulated 15 minutes later on the dump <laughs> and lost like $300,000 oh. or something in 15 oh minutes. God. You have to and know. That was, probably, and, that was probably like a hell of a lot of his net worth. And if he had held, he yeah. would have had millions after. So it's, it's so emotional and people don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to read Dex tools. They don't know how to read the charts. So I was very active and they just tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're a moderator now. And so I'm very active in that chat. We were, it's a whole world. It's, it's totally nuts. And I've just stuck with it, but I have watched, I have sold for a, a, an amount of profit, but not at the top. Uh, I don't think anybody really expected the market to cool off as much as it has. One thing I've learned in this project is that I did get a little myopic focusing only on the project. You have to look at macro. You have to look at the NASDAQ, right. how overheated that is. You well, and there's it, narrative trends. Yeah. yeah. It all flows downhill from global equity. So if the NASDAQ, I mean, if Netflix is down like over 20% mm -hmm. in a day, two days, just brutal. So you have to look at how overcooked the NASDAQ is, where the RSI is on that. It all follows that. So you can't get too attached to one single project. Um, and, you know, I have watched it come down. We're waiting now. There's actually like a contract upgrade happening this weekend. I've learned a lot. It's a very cool, very fun community. The, the mods are a real community online. We look out. We look after each other. We support one, one another. We support the community. There's a lot of garbage. Other tokens will send people into the chat just to talk shit and talk us down. So we got to find those people, mute them, ban them. Right. It's a real, there's some real work that goes on to it. It's absolutely crazy. It, it, one thing I like about crypto is that it does make the internet kind of fun again. It makes it feel, it makes me feel like I'm a, a kid again online. No, crypto Twitter. Yeah. It's so, one of the major reasons why I, I enjoy the platform. It's I mean, fun. I and mean, part of it was, uh, you know, and not a lot of people talk about this, but I think that after Trump was banned, you yeah. know, back in January. Yeah. You know, that took, that took kind of sucked a lot of life out of Twitter and people <laughs> were down on it. But, you know, Trump took up all of the oxygen in the room. Yeah, right. And it seemed like that actually really helped the crypto bull market hmm. is that there were a lot of people that thought, you know, they were kind of disenfranchised with politics. Hmm. And they saw crypto as a technology, you know, the decentralization component. Yeah. And it really got behind that and got invested in crypto. It's like, you know, the political solutions look pretty bleak. Crypto will wake you up if you're uh, not the most financially savvy person. Crypto will wake you up to just how fully on lock the global financial system has us. Yes. And how it doesn't need to be that way. Crypto is so fast. It really is the future. It is a disruptive technology. We will look at the world the way we do now about the Internet, about finance in 10 or 15 years. We will not remember finance before cryptos it's making everything fast I, businesses are going to be raising money with it they're going to be tokenizing their businesses uh, floki went to a 3.5 billion dollar market cap 
in four or five months. Wow. Now it's at about half a bill, which, oh gosh, it's collapsed. It's like, well, has it? I mean, right. you have. it depends on when you got in. Um, again, we're going through a contract upgrade. Shout out to the Floki Vikings. We're all going to make it, I believe. And uh, we, have, we haven't even been listed on Binance and all the rest. So I'm holding, for me, it's Valhalla or nothing, man. And I, and I, love, I love the community. I love the memes. And to get into my thesis, my investing thesis with Floki, these, these Bitcoin maxis, these blue chip guys that look down on tokens like this, they're bad for the space, blah, blah. Floki has given hundreds of thousands of people more entertainment than Netflix will give uh, this year in through the community, through the memes. Memes are stories. People buy stories. And the story is the fun, is the value. How right. much, and again, you know, I was just talking about how much Netflix has collapsed. Ne Netflix shaved like $40 billion worth of value in a week. Netflix is this monumentally valuable company because it provides entertainment. Right. Well, what is Floki doing? Well, they're building a game. There's going to be a play-to-earn game. But what has it been doing this year since it started? It's been entertaining people. Yes. It's been giving people something to do online. We make memes. We chat with one another. We make community. I have. There's a group we have in Minnesota. It's the Minnesota Floki Bros. We got together at a restaurant in St. Paul all because of this stupid meme coin. And we look at <laughs> one guy's a Marine. I mean, these are real people. And it's we're bringing people together. It's yeah. giving them a sense of community. Yeah. And and so you can talk to me about these cards are they're worthless. There's no value. Yes, there's value. Memes are entertainment. Memes are stories. They're marketing for the coin, right? I mean, this, this coin has, I think we have like eight major, like tier one football soccer teams all around the world have Floki on their their uh, sleeves and on their socks and stuff. There's a real marketing campaign behind this, but that's my point. Memes, the memes are the value of the meme coins. Yes. And if you don't, if you can't see that, I, I don't know what else to say to you. No, and, and that's the beauty of crypto is that money is what people want it to be. Yep. And there's a real network effect there. Yep. And the thing I found fascinating about crypto is how you have these communities mm -hmm. that develop and they take on a life of their own. Yeah, a personality mm -hmm. that um, it, it's it's almost like a spiritual experience. Yeah, it's it's kind of like it's it, it you know for me like I look at what's happened with sports and sports teams. Yeah, since COVID has you know since COVID hit and it's really kind of taken the life out of sports. Yes, it has. But I find a lot more entertainment in the crypto community and people getting hyped about certain coins. There's so much enthusiasm. We have a real culture in that chat. Valhalla or nothing, baby. It's it's and yeah. we have fun and yeah. we we hype each other up and we have a community and we've we have had bad actors in there. We had some some sleazeballs who sold the top and said they weren't selling and you have this other that always happens. Yeah, yeah, it always happens. Yeah. And then you yeah. find out who these guys are and you go, oh, okay, I see. You're not you're not what you claim to be. Uh, there was another token, Unfederal Reserve, recently that had this complete meltdown because it was these bankers who were claiming to do all of this DeFi stuff, all of this, we're going to transform the industry. And then it turns out like the CTO was a crack addict and he dumped like, like five. Yeah, but, so, <laughs> yeah, just but, go like, what? But, but let, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Because the so, Wild West. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of people, and, I, and I've run across a few in my day, that are con men. Yeah. They're manipulators. Flimflam artists. But they don't at ever, a high level. But they, but they don't think that's what they are. Yes. The best con man doesn't think that he's manipu intentionally manipulating you to do something else. He truly believes what he's doing. Yeah. He's living in a world of delusion. Yep. 
And he, his, his goal is to sell that delusion to you and have you buy in. Yeah. And that really is what it is. And it kind of manifests itself. But I mean, the best con men truly believe what they're selling and they just can't see it. I think so. Yeah. I agree. And, and yeah. crypto is full of them and you have to be uh, smart. You have to, again, if I'm advising anybody, get into a good group uh, of people who know what they're doing, people you trust. Mm -hmm. um, it's and, very personal mm -hmm. because we all have different risk tolerances. Yes. I mean, it depends on what you what you do. Like I have a brother that's got in crypto. He's got a day job and, you know, he has some Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, kind of the blue chip tokens. Yeah. And for him to be trading tokens all day long and doing all the research on the tech is just too time consuming. So it's easier for him to dollar cost average into blue chips. Sure. And maybe, he believes in crypto as a whole. He believes in crypto as a whole. If you believe, yeah, if you believe in crypto as a, as a whole, you can dollar cost average into Bitcoin or Ethereum. And if you think Bitcoin's going to half a million by 2025. I think it's going to, I, I, I do think that Bitcoin is going to hit $100,000. It's going to hit think 250. So. It's going to hit 500,000. It's going to hit a million. But what will happen as well is we think about Bitcoin hitting a million dollars and that what that's worth today. Right. Whenever it hits a million dollars, let's say whether it's in five years or 10 years, a dollar isn't going to mean anything what we think about today. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 So we all have different risk tolerances. And for me, I, I think I've probably gone the full spectrum mm. in terms of I, I probably, you know, foregone a lot of opportunities by having gotten into Bitcoin because mm. I was thinking, OK, where can I park some money that's going to be safe? And, I, and mm. there's also a t you know, I, I tried you know, playing the stock market. And I didn't like that as much. There's something to where my temperament and my psychology is more suited for crypto yeah. than it is other risk assets. Right. So are, are you like, you know, of, of your total bag, how much of it is in crypto versus percentage wise versus I'm, like the stock market? Crypto. I'm all crypto. And, yeah. uh, you know, I have I have a solid career going so that if crypto I'm in crypto for life changing money. Right. And. The way you make life-changing life money in crypto is either you start with a, a serious bag and you go for more blue chip tokens and you learn how to trade and all the rest, right. or you go for these mega ults that have the potential to do 100x, right. and you take $10,000 and you, you 100x $10,000. Um, but uh, they're, these those can be are, very short term. They're so, extremely I, risky. I, I had an experience with one of the meme coins. It was called Dogs of Elon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called Dogs of Elon. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, Coin Market Cap will, will list the pre-sales. Yep. And I remember looking. You could put any up to twenty, like nineteen or twenty Ethereum. Yeah. This was a couple of months ago, and I remember thinking, I looked at the project, and I thought this is well thought out. And they had like, you know, they were also airdropping NFTs that were, you know, really interesting NFTs of Elon and dogs and cats. Sure, and sure. Like, you know, it's it's it, maybe it's valuable, but yeah, yeah. but I can see that it was a well thought out project. Yeah, and I didn't buy the token presale. Right. This is my own. This is my own sob story. Okay. okay. So can you bear with me here? Yeah. You yeah. Know, kind of help me through this. Yeah. We've so, already. So yeah. you know, I was thinking, okay, I, I, maybe I want to put ten to twenty Ethereum in this. Let's just roll it, and you know, let's see what happens. So it was at five cents a coin presale. Yeah. And it opens up, and within a couple of days, it runs up from five cents to seventy three cents. And that's when you sell. I, I didn't buy in the presale. Yep. And I ended up waiting and I did, ended up buying in via MetaMask and Uniswap. I ended up buying in about 40 cents and I saw it run up to 73. And I put in some money. Yeah. And I watched it and I'm looking like at the price and I'm like, 
this is great. I think it can go higher. Yep. And I didn't do anything. And yep. then it dropped a little bit lower and I still didn't want to sell. And where did I end up selling? Break even. Yeah. And now that coin is at like, you know, four or five cents and maybe three cents now. Right. So it, it's pretty much done. Yeah. yeah, in, yeah. Unless somebody comes. But it's these windows of opportunity are very, very small. This is why you have to, if you get into these meme plays and these MetaMask early, <laughs> if you buy these early, you have to have a plan. And some some people will... Don't it, be about, afraid to take profit. No, you have to take profit on the way up. And some some people, because they know their tolerance, as soon as they get a 2X, uh, they sell their, their initial. And that way, everything else is house money. Mm -hmm. And they sleep at night. Right. And if that's where you are, do that and try to get in early on a project like Floki, mm -hmm. like uh, something else, the next one, because there will be a next one. There will be. And if your risk tolerance is low at that 2x sell, take your initial, everything else is gravy. But again, if you lose in crypto as soon as you put in something, you can't lose. Mm -hmm. If you're putting in money that is going to affect you to the degree where like if it goes down 50%, you're going to freak out and capitulate. Yeah. You've you're, already if, if, lost. If you're going to be psychologically traumatized and you can't sleep at night yeah. and you bet the farm. Yeah. You've lost. You can't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. And don't quit your job because Bitcoin suddenly. A lot of people it, did that. It's so funny. You hear these stories where people quit their job and then three weeks later. I mean, you, we have all these great memes of the, the McDonald's hat comes back on the crypto bro <laughs> yeah i love that i'm again I'm, i've I'm, seen michael saylor do that recently yep i'm yeah. just in it for the memes uh but i i feel good about floki still i didn't take profit last year because of some personal reasons and taxes and everything else and i do regret that somewhat i've learned a ton i've got a, a, a really fast education in kind of charts and how to read basic technical analysis Looking back, it's easy to reverse engineer trades and go, ooh, I should have done that. But again, I still, I still feel very good about this project. We're going through an airdrop uh, this weekend. We're upgrading the contract. It's going to become a DAO. Uh, and that should position us for uh, major listings. We, we were just verified on CoinMarketCap today. At one point, we were a top 60, top 70 coin. Without being on the major exchanges? Without being on the major exchanges. We're oh, not even huge. on We're not even on uh, KuCoin or Huobi or much less Binance. Well, KuCoin lists everything. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the KuCoin... Pretty much. The, the timing for us was we had this mega pump. Everything was really exciting. Then Squid Game rugged. There's this ridiculous Squid Game token rugged. Avoid all those tokens in my opinion unless you really know what you're doing avoid all the tokens that are based on like a game or a netflix series coming out or batman or anything like that those are gonna those are gonna wreck you um because they're all based by the just time around. you've heard about it it's too late it, unless you're in unless you're in crypto right. so i would i would advise somebody if somebody's interested in this space uh, i would suggest to people to set aside a bag of what you're willing to lose. I think of it, think of it, and I'm not saying that crypto is a casino, but think of it as casino money. If you're the kind of person who's like, you know what? I would take a, a, a trip to Vegas with $5,000 for the whole you know, long weekend to Vegas, $3,000, whatever it is, the flight, the hotel rooms, and $1,000 for blackjack. If that's your mentality, just don't go to Vegas that one time. Put that, buy Ethereum on Coinbase or whatever, Get a MetaMask wallet, move the Ethereum to MetaMask, and do some research 
into these super small cap altcoins. If you go onto crypto Twitter and you start looking into the space, you can ingratiate yourself with some people. You can follow some influencers. You can get into Telegram. It all happens in Telegram. All the crypto chats are in Telegram. You can. A lot of those are juiced up. Yo, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You. But my point is, learn how to do that because if you do that, if you have a MetaMask wallet with three grand in Ethereum ready to go, you're you're ahead of ninety five percent of the people who hold crypto just because they buy a little bit on Robinhood or they buy. Yeah, and 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 that's and that's a that's a really good point. Yeah. Because a lot of people are just buying crypto and holding it on an exchange. Yep. And whenever you have to move it off an exchange into MetaMask or into another wallet. Yeah. That does require a whole different layer of effort, level of effort. And, Just, yep. and, so, and a lot of people get stuck and they can't do it. You want to find the, if you're looking for these 10X, 50X, 100X, 1000X opportunities, you want to find real projects that have real potential uh, like Floki uh, did and does uh, as early as possible buy red candles don't buy green candles red candles will always come back don't never fomo never worry about missing out it will always correct it will always come down um it nothing goes up in a straight line forever um and just just having that knowledge and knowing how to add a contract address and to throw a thousand dollars at a super small cap token that's worth maybe 10 to 30 million dollars in market cap if you you're lucky and you buy at a 10 million dollar market cap of something that then goes on to have a billion dollar market cap let's say before a binance listing and then it gets life-changing money. Life money from from one play right you know and you could lose it you can turn a thousand dollars into ten dollars real fast too right. in this so it's it's a crapshoot this is why you say don't invest in what you're don't invest in anything you're you're not willing to lose for real. No, that's good. And I think it's a it's a great point for people because um and it's exciting to see. Yeah. So many people make money in this. Yeah. I mean, right now there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth with the way the market's looking right <laughs> yeah, it's now. It's not fun. But we know crypto today. It's going to turn around again. The the Nasdaq and the equities are are really bleeding. I was looking at the Nasdaq chart recently and I'm just feeling so foolish in hindsight because you look at it and the thing is so clearly overcooked it's ridiculous right. uh there's so much funny money that was and that's floating boomer around. money by the way yeah yeah that's what really hurts right is that you know like we're, we're in you know we're still kind of you know a fly on an elephant's ass I mm. mean in terms of you know all the money in the world and you look at what's going on in this in the stock market I mean, this is pretty harrowing for people, particularly the boomers who have the majority of capital. They're scared shitless right now. It, it needs to correct. It can't go up that hard forever. And there will be a correction. And crypto will always get whaled harder because it's more risk on. There's more risk to it. Right. You, think of, you can think of crypto. There's and, more emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's more emotion and there's more leverage trading. Yeah. I mean, you have these strange leverage wicks that'll happen to Bitcoin and the others where it's clearly coordinated uh, movement to... Who's doing it? Uh, I think, well, it's whales. Uh, there's some theory that the exchanges potentially collude in See, this. See, I, I think the exchanges and the whales are working yeah, in concert. Yeah, yeah, because they know there was, there was one rumor. So this is one of the things I love about crypto is that it, it's very quickly, it starts to feel like campfire stories. Where now we're into the realm of like folklore and what's real and what's true. I love that stuff. This is these are modern myths that we're getting to live out and enact. It's very vital, uh, and I enjoy it. And the stakes are real. Um, yeah, no, there I, there was a, a story going around where there was some fellow who apparently works on somebody's mega yacht, 
Mm. maybe Mark Cuban, you don't know. And he was saying that, no, these people get together and they are, this is the topic of conversation among these people is the crypto market and what's being done. And of course, I mean, it would take, it would take maybe a group of 20 or 30 of those people to do that when you leverage trade. And so for people who don't know about crypto and, and trading leverage, leverage is essentially borrowing from the exchange that you're on in order to purchase more, uh, crypto than your principal allows if you're trading on spot. Right. So if I have $10,000, or let's just for ease of math, $36,000, I can buy one Bitcoin. There are exchange right now, and God willing, that goes up. Um, but if I'm trading with, with leverage, and I 3x that, 3x leverage, I can buy three Bitcoin for that amount of money. But if Bitcoin goes down a certain percentage, I'll be liquidated. Those losses are also... Ex like compounded by three. Right. And so it's a good way to make a lot of money really, really quickly, but it's also a good way to get completely wrecked. And there's a ton of leverage trading and all the exchanges, the exchanges know how much leverage is in play at a given time. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's actually a website you can go to and yep. see where everybody's levered. Well, there was that last uh, weird wick before, it, which... Uh, it was maybe about, I can't, I can't remember, maybe like six weeks ago. This is the, see, time in crypto is like inception, right? It's like one week in crypto is a year in the I, stock it totally market. totally is. It's nuts. I but mean, look, look at this beard. Oh, man, I know. I got a lot of gray here, too. But the but there was that one weird wick down where it's like suddenly, and see, normies and, and people who don't know what's going on in the market, they just go, oh, my God, it's a panic. Well, no, it's not a panic. That long red candle down and the sudden wick up is whales leverage and liquidations it's leverage liquidations and they liquidated i think it was some billions of dollars worth of bitcoin was was liquidated in a day so the thing that's interesting to me leverage is, is, is that when you when you look at like you know the the market cap of bitcoin yeah and you look at you know the question i've had is like let's say that somebody just wants to sell a hundred thousand two hundred coins at any point in time how much can that affect like the price of Bitcoin, because like so, so there's 21 million million coins max, right? There's 18 million coins that have 18 and a half million coins that have been mined thus far. There's probably been three or four million that have been lost. So maybe you're looking at like 14, 15 million Bitcoin right now that are in play. Yeah, and you know a lot of people are are hodling. You know they're not selling. <laughs> you know maybe you like hodl. 11, 12 million. So you have maybe two, three million coins that are like actively being traded. Yeah, and it's interesting how. You know these you know small amounts that are be being introduced or being sold on exchanges can cause just rapid fluctuations in price yeah it's a it's i don't a, really understand it it's a highly volatile asset class and the more extreme you become with the getting into harder and harder alts and lower and lower market caps they're affected and it's all downstream of global equities right you got to watch the nasdaq you got to watch bitcoin it's amazing how much bitcoin follows the market signals that come from equities right like you i wait for the market open like a boomer because i want to see which way bitcoin goes my my day-to-day like, cause I'm really in crypto right now and I don't intend to be in it like this forever because I don't want to be one of these people who wait. I don't, I'm not going to waste the next five years well, the of my life. The problem is the time and energy commitment. Yeah. So this is one thing to think about is right. that, you know, like you and I are kind of in like the, like make it or break it years, like entering our prime income earning years, going into our forties. Sure. So how are we going to allocate our time? Like right. if you're a young person, you know, if you're 16, 20 years old, you could do this 24 seven and it's just like, it's kind of like, okay, uh, when, when you're where we are, there's, yeah. a, there's real like 
opportunity cost and there's trade-offs. I think that in a funny way, there might be more opportunity cost for the young guys. Like you got to be, because hit, they're developmental. you got to be hitting the gym. You got to be, I mean, I have a career going. Right. I have That's my things, too, because, you know, because they're like in the developmental stages yeah. to where they have to kind of go in a certain direction. Yeah. Whereas you have more options available in like a 20 plus year career. Yeah. That you can fall back on. That's what I mean. It's a good point. I, yeah. I mean, I, I made the choice to really go in hard. I mean, the joke I've been making is that I have chosen to make crypto my midlife crisis. I, <laughs> I chose. That's a lot better than a sports car. Well, I, I want to get the sports car. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. Uh, but and I will give this much time for a year or two, maybe another couple of years to make the kind of life changing gains that I that I want for my family. Right. I'm I am not motivated by the idea that I'm going to buy the Lambo and, and be a certain way. Like I really is mode. I am motivated by my family, my kids. I want to make the money that my family's never had right. and for them. And, and frankly, for some friends of mine, I want to do, I want to do serious things. And this gets back to the uh, impetus of this, this segment, I guess, is like those young guys who've made that money. I do pray because they're going to be casualties. There are going to be a lot of people that are going to have that lottery problem. Where they're going to look back. Well, their identity is so tied up in the numbers on a screen. Right. And I think about myself at 25 and what I would have, the way my life might have gone if I had suddenly had $4 million. Right. I don't know if my life would have been better. I don't know. There are going to be good ones. There are going to be bad ones. You hear these horror stories of people who win the lottery and then regret it. There are going to be cases like that. There are going to be casualties. And um, I hope that the young guys who make the money can have some humility and use leverage it to build real things well, like buy real estate real real estate and, and but do it properly like actually get care about it right not just be right. yeah there's this whole greed it's very gross there's the, you like short-term been, thing, like like short-term flipping are you talking about just kind of like more transactional i guess just like be good people about it right yeah. like try to there's more to life than than getting the seven eight figure bag and flaunting it for the rest of your life yeah build a business i mean if you have uh if you have 10 million dollars from crypto after taxes there's so much in your life you can do and i hope that some of these guys start to do it i hope they they uh want to fund the movies <laughs> they want to yeah. make a movie start a production company find creative people uh you don't know everything i think that there, there might be a bit of a i've seen this in some of the guys that that i've interacted with there's a bit of a god complex that happens uh where it's just like there's they there's so much luck that goes into hitting this at the right time and it's easy to forget that there's an element and it's of not luck just here. skill no. There's a lot of fortune of good timing yep. and just things happening, no matter how smart you are. Yeah. There is certainly an element of luck involved. So just have some humility about it. And then again, yeah, I'm with you. It's like try to build real things and, and do real, you know, solid, good things with your with your good fortune. Uh, because I think you kind of, I mean, that's just, that's what I would hope that these guys yeah. would do. Yeah. yeah. And I want to try, kind of use this as an opportunity to transition. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about these young guys. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think so many young people have been interested in crypto is because there's a broken incentive system in oh, terms yeah. of like, you know, small business formation, entrepreneurship, barriers to entry to where it's really the easiest, quickest way to make money. And I totally get it. People should do that. But at the same time, we have a lot of talented people and great minds that could do great things in the physical and the real world, 
that they're you know really hold up in the crypto space. It's not just the crypto space. This is a narrative that's been going around on the Bird website recently. On our corner of it, people have been talking about how our greatest minds, our our most talented people, are trapped in what amount to email jobs. Yeah, their job, even if they're like great lawyers, lawyers, their job is to just copy and paste documents, be a pretty face, have the pedigree, and just copy and paste and write emails and show up on time and answer the emails on time. And that's it. They're not making anything great. They're not settling any frontier. They're not, they're, they're not, not being pushed. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. They're, yeah. And they're, I mean, there's a lot of guys that are, look, you shouldn't be 25 years old and checked out of your job. That's a failing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I see that a lot of people saying, okay, like you've got your, your day job, you know, you work for a corporation and just sit there and get the paycheck yeah. and just kind of check out, do the bare minimum. That is not the way I was raised. Mm. Like you got hired by a company, you were obligated to give them your best. Yeah, yeah. And I look back now and a lot of that was kind of stupid thinking. Like I look back and I'm like, oh, these guys are actually playing it the right way yeah. based on the context of where we are. Yeah. And I was probably doing it a little bit the wrong way. And I you will, this lie that you will get somewhere by working hard, that's for the birds for sure. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't always work out that way. Right. And the hard worker doesn't always get the promotion and doesn't always end up in the in the best position. Because if you're working in a stupid channel, it doesn't matter how hard you work. Nobody cares. Hey, listen, I, I, I've experienced it myself. So my last venture was in the packaging and spirits industry. And so, you know, I didn't really know a lot about the spirits industry. All you know is about people that had the huge exits or built these mon incredible companies like Tito Beverage. Sure. But then there's all the people like Deep Eddie Vodka that sold and they made like, you know, incredible multiples of revenue. And you look at them and you think, I can be that guy. But you don't really understand the context, the connections, and all the things that went into those people making that kind of money. Yeah. And you look into, one of the things that I want to preach to people is that it doesn't matter how good your idea is. You need to really understand the industry, industry that you're entering. Because if there's a lot of regulatory capture, and there are barriers to entry, and there's a lot of regulation involved, and people that you have to kind of pay off, and there's distribution limitations, Yeah, you need to really reconsider whether or not you should enter that industry. Mm. And that's a big issue for people, is that they just kind of go into it blindly and think, hey, I'm going to go do this. And then they kind of get too far down the road, and they realize there's all these layers of cost that they have to absorb yeah. before they can really do well. And nobody's going to tell you that up front because those are all sort of secrets of the trade. Secrets of this the trade. This is how we do yeah. things. And if you're not read in, you have a serious problem. And there's no, and there's no books about it. Right. There's no, And it's even hard to go find this kind of information online. Mm. Like you just have to go through it, and then you kind of get to a point where you've got to be you know, smart enough to realize, do I continue on or is this really not? But you've got to really pre-vet an idea or a product before you jump in that industry. Mm. Yeah, that, I mean, that comes back to what I was talking about with the meme coins and everything. I mean, if I could go back, the way I learn is by just jumping in and right. doing. But if I could go back, I would encourage my, I would tell myself, yo, slow down just a little bit. Try to get some more education up front in what this is and, what, and what's going on. I think that's true with almost anything. Do as much reading as you can about it. Talk uh, to people. Talk to people. But don't don't get swallowed up by inertia. Make that That's part a great of point. make yeah. that part of the beginning, but then then you know, then throw throw ten thousand dollars at the dog coin and see. Right. No, that's a great point. That really is. <laughs> yeah. And also, but for me with crypto, really getting involved in the community was huge. Because 
it has made me feel a little more in control of my own investment, a little more involved, a lot more involved. Uh, I'm not just sitting there looking at numbers on the screen. I know why we're down. I know where we are. I know the names of a lot of the people who sold. Right. <laughs> like I, I'm in it. Right. Um, you know, it's helpful to think of these projects as like startups. Like Floki, in a funny, in a way, is like a very, very fast startup that has mm -hmm. gone to scale very, very quickly. And when this information, when this knowledge of what crypto is and how the blockchain really works starts to disseminate out and become married to to entrepreneurship and to other ways of doing things. These are all the, the high, high flown, high flying promises that you read about on crypto Twitter. When that, yeah. when they actually start to happen, there's going to be some crazy stories. There are going to be people who, who have a, an idea for a, a whiskey or a vodka who raise the money for it through a, through NFTs. We, we, we should be doing that already. It's, I mean, I, I'm so, sure some so, people so already having are raised money for a startup. Yeah. They're, they're, you have to go get a private placement memorandum. Yep. That's going to cost twenty to $50,000. Lawyers, lawyers. Lawyers. So there's there's a huge amount of transactional costs just to get in the game. Yep. So you have to go raise money, put your own money in, just so you have the documents that are SEC compliant where you can go raise money from accredited investors. Yep. Accredited investors are 3% of the population. Yep. It's hard to, raise, hard to raise money in general. But whenever you have to go fish in 3% of the population and find people that are interested within that 3%, it's a formidable task. Everything should be tokenized. If you want to go open up a distillery, whatever, you know, t-shirt company, it. whatever it is, everything should be tokenized. That's coming. It should be frictionless. That's coming. The Floki uh, has a partnership with Kimball Musk's charity, the Million Gardens That's Movement. Cool. Yeah, 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 Million Gardens Movement. He's doing a, a, he's calling it the Green Dow. So he's doing a decentralized autonomous organization for... Uh, for his initiative. This is something else, but Million Gardens and Floki has a set of NFTs that are going to have an application in the forthcoming game, Valhalla, mm. which is coming out soon. There's going to be a, like a sample teaser battle arena thing coming out soon. The full game is yet to be released, will, will be released at some point. Um, there are weekly uh, AMAs on that on Twitter on Mondays. Um, so it's like a startup. It's like a gaming startup on top of everything else. It's wild. Um, but we minted these NFTs as a community. I think it was 10,000 of them. They're called Flocatars. Uh, and in an hour, they sold out. And all of the money from the minting was donated to Million Gardens Movement. $1.4 million in donations to a charity that helps people do urban gardening and self-sustaining gardens and all the rest in an hour through decentralized community and an NFT. And you're over here, you know, thinking about how you can raise $2 million for your startup. This community did it in an hour for a not-for-profit. That's amazing. I mean, think about what this means. Yeah. I mean, we, we think about like angel list. Yeah. You know, listing startups. We should have the same thing in crypto mm -hmm. where people can, or like with Kickstarter, you yeah. know, people doing donations for cool, you know, products and projects, but we should have the same thing in crypto. And I know people are working on it, Yeah, but it, I mean, and that's the interesting thing about crypto. There's so many people working on various projects that just haven't really seen the light of day. They haven't gotten traction yet, but all of the energy in like tech, in entrepreneurship is in crypto and in the blockchain. For sure. I mean, and when it, when, when we look back on this, we will look back on this period like old geriatric millennials look back on 1996 and the internet. It's yeah. 1996 again, but it's the internet with finance yeah. and the year is 2022. 
Yeah. And we're going through a down year right now. So we might, or, you know, we might be in, what would the year be in, in tech? What was it like? When was the, when did the bubble burst in tech? Might be comparable to that right yeah. now. And oh, the internet's dead. It's over, right? No, no. The good parts of crypto, even if let's say, God forbid, uh, evil eye warding off the spirits, you know, uh, Bitcoin goes down to $10,000 and it's over and everybody it's over. It, blockchain's not going anywhere. And it is going to be this transformative technology. And the way I know it is that guys like you and I, we're having this conversation and we're, we're ideating things that I know other people are working on. Well, and it, it, yeah. it's a boomer trigger when you talk <laughs> about this kind of thing. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, I've been on the golf course and, you know, you know, playing somewhere and, you know, gosh, where was it? Like Destin, Florida with a uh -huh. couple of older guys. Yeah. And they asked me, what do you do? I said, well, you know, I do consulting. I'm in crypto. I like crypto. Yeah. And like, you know, the, the hairs on the back of their neck stand up and they're really like, what are you doing? Yeah. And I remember one of them saying, Alex, why do we need Bitcoin? And I remember thinking, how can we live without Bitcoin? Yeah. You know, but our, but our frame of reference is so different because they're consuming legacy media, old media. Yeah. And you know, they're passive media consumers. Right. Whereas we're engaged and we've curated content and we're really dialed in. And they just don't get it. Mm. And it bothers them. Some of them. Some of them are totally hip and they get it yeah. and they're getting exposure to it or they have a, you know, there's, you know, their, you know, their son, daughter, grandkids are involved in it and they're coming around. But for some of them, it's still a trigger. Yeah. Because, without Because the dollar is a brand. Oh yeah. The, the U S dollar is the greatest slow rug of all time. Yeah. <laughs> rug. I mean, look at the, uh, Google, the, you know, U S dollar purchasing power over yeah. the 20th century. And it's just, it looks like a crypto chart that just rugs to nothing. Yeah, that's what it is. It does. <laughs> it does. But they, they get triggered by it. And you have to kind of be careful in how you, you know, give them the information, you know, so mm, mm. Yeah. I just think get on get on Dex tools and look at the Floki chart. Look at the Floki Ethereum chart. Just look at the uh, the transactions. You can yeah. see every purchase. You can see every sale. Uh, it's incredible. And when no, you, is it on Etherscan? Yeah, it's on Etherscan. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And it's, it's, it's on, uh, either it's on the Ethereum chain and the Binance smart chain right now. Again, we're going through a contract upgrade, so we may even be offline for, um, a couple days this weekend for that. Cause we're moving to a DAO. The DAO is going to be to position us for these tier one exchanges and that's coming and God willing, the market will like, get at least a serious dead can't dead cat bounce and we can see some upward movement in you know that correlates to our listings hopefully the whole market comes back i mean again if you zoom out of the stock market and you look at these horrific crashes that they talk about for years and you zoom out far enough it doesn't you don't even see them yeah because it always just it just goes up there's right. that saying right time in the market beats timing the market i agree so, yeah yeah just be engaged is a key thing yeah. oh for sure yeah and even if you get wrecked right away if you followed Kevin's rule number one and didn't invest anything you can't lose, you the only thing that's going to happen to you is that you're going to get an education. You're going to learn some right. new skills. Uh, so that's what I that's what I tell people. We're all going to make it, man. It's Valhalla or nothing. Yeah, oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Dude. All right, well, listen. All right, let, let's take a little break. Cool, and we'll come back in a few minutes. All right. All right. Later.